perspective thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Al Care Hall, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Al. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, Celestial Event, that works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. It's a wonderful Wednesday evening in southern Ontario. The snow is falling. It was slower than normal on the way home as a result because, thank God, I just had my snow tires put on, so everything's great. But I am just as equally excited for our guest. Yeah, yeah, we have a guest who's almost not a guest anymore. He's sort no. of just like another co-host. Yeah, he's, he's part of the the PG family. Yeah, the the, the posse, if you will. A posse uh, yeah, of we, five or six. The thing is, this will actually be the third uh, podcast that this person has been on in a row on Phantom Galaxy. So I guess you kind of are a co-host. Uh, we'll bring in Victor Rodriguez. Victor, how are you? Very kind of you guys. Yes, I'm doing fine, and it's great to be back. Thanks for the invite. I really appreciate it. You never left, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, we're so happy to have you back. And the, the the funny thing with all these episodes is, like, one we had just put the X-Files one up that was recorded back in, like, August. And then we had done the, the, the top horror novels, which was a lot of fun. And originally Bill had sent in a voicemail, but then he could join us when we went to record the second half. So uh, that one's a lot of fun. That's actually got a lot of great feedback, the best uh, horror books episode, and which has sort of instigated me to add another Russian nesting doll to the list, but we'll discuss that on a future podcast. I was going to say, uh, it's it's really happy, I'm really happy to hear people getting into the book talk, because yeah. I mean, I think it's something that Nathan, myself, Victor, a lot of other people, you know, sometimes it doesn't get as much publicity or credit or people don't talk about it as much, but I mean, if you're a movie lover, 90% of them are book lovers as well. So yeah. I think it's, I think books it's are my first love, honestly. And books are the thing I, I actually prefer books. It just takes me longer to read them than watch a movie. <laughs> I mean, as a result of my job, I have between yeah. the months of late May and early September to read. And that's about it. So, so I squeeze in as much as I can. But mm-hmm. uh, since we are talking about books, we should go ahead and uh, we'll put this right up front that Victor is an author and he has a collection of short stories out there. Victor, is there anything you wanted to say about that before we jump right in? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, it's uh, th- my first collection is called The Sound of Fear, and it's available through Amazon, digital or print. And um, yeah, you can just look it up by my by my uh, uh, true to life name of uh, Victor H. Rodriguez, and uh, it'll pop up. So, And Victor, what is the adjoining podcast that is almost a secondary form of the book? 
Yeah, my producer Josh and I uh, recorded a podcast where I do a dramatic reading of each story in that book, and then Josh interviews me about inspirational sources uh, and so on. And uh, sometimes we get pretty rowdy uh, in in that section, but um, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's called Inside the Sound of Fear, and that's available on all your podcatchers. Yep, and it's in the show. Both of them are in the show notes. Even links to the I'll put links to the book. And oh, awesome. links to the uh, the episode. Now I now I just Thanks. copy and paste it since you show up so much. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I just add to it every time you publish a new thing. I just add it to the list. Please do. <laughs> so, well, my yeah. yeah, my latest thing is I have a fantasy slash horror uh, story in Savage Realms Monthly number four. Yeah, it's the a, May issue. It, I think it's yeah. a May. Yeah, the May issue. Um, and, and where might people find this? Uh, same, uh, you know, Amazon or, you know, anywhere you get. Uh, I got that link already. Periodicals. <laughs> it's already yeah. in there. <laughs> like, is it beside Time, Swank, and then, you know, that one? No, it's not, pub- it's not published in Cavalier, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure that they publish that anymore, but. Not that I'm um, above that. Not that you're right. <laughs> it's good enough for Stephen King, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, re- I remember reading one of his books saying that, you know, he. It was always weird when he had to push his way past the dirty old men ogling the, the thing because he wanted to get in there and like grab a copy and see a story published. <laughs> but he just looked like <laughs> another perv because he was running up there and grabbing it and flipping through it. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm doing it for the stories. I'm doing it for the yes. stories. <laughs> the articles. Yeah, the articles. <laughs> anyway, we're way off. Um, way off. Yeah. But. I'm glad to have Victor here. This is actually going to be a weekly review or a weekly. Yeah, right. It's been a little bit since we've done a review episode, but uh, this is going to be a Phantom Galaxy review episode. We are aiming to start doing these a lot more regularly, and and Bill and I will be recording another one next week that will kind of. But uh, tonight we have Victor here, and we're we're playing a lot of catch up actually to movies and that we saw a while ago, and actually intended to have uh, discussions on, and just never got quite matched up with the time to do it, and. Uh, you know, and I, I feel kind of bad because we, uh, Victor, you were just recently on an episode of Real Talk, which I also have in the show notes. And a couple of the movies you talked about there, we're talking about tonight. But I think we'll probably go into a little bit more depth with some of these and look at them from a different angle. So I, I don't the, the way I like to bad. think of it is Victor is our resident expert. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> we just put that up. But uh, a big movie that was at the top of my list for pretty much the entire, well, last year too, because it was originally slated, I think, for last year, or at least slated for the, the, the fall, uh, was Dune. And uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. And it's funny because I don't think I even became aware of the fact that it wasn't the entire movie <laughs> until, until this previous fall, you know, when I suddenly realized, Oh, it's part one. <laughs> so shortly <laughs> before it released, I don't know. I, you know, after, uh, since I've been a critic when I, I was bombarded with information all the time and now I had the, the luxury not to know everything about a movie before I go in, I've, I've almost gone the opposite direction and buried my head in the sand sometimes. So I didn't even know that it was only Dune part one until like August. <laughs> I think, but it is indeed Dune part one. And I'm going to turn this over to Bill because I know Bill has not read Dune. And I think this is the first time you encountered Dune, right? Or did you, have you seen the old movie? Well, it's funny. Dune is one where I didn't read it, but as a kid, somebody had given me the book. So it had sat on my shelf for years and years and years. I was intimidated because it was a thick sucker and I never read it. So I knew Frank Herbert was the author. And because I you what, saw it on the spine. Because I saw it on the spine. <laughs> and I actually used to have the jacket cover 
you know, from 1984 for years nice. and years and years. But I never actually read the book. And the only thing I knew about the original was Sting was in it. <laughs> yeah. So you're the perfect person to summarize it. As exactly. I want to hear you summarize it. <laughs> and, and, and so, like, I was a huge fan of the police and Sting. So I was like, you know, I should have gotten to it, but I just never did. Because in my younger days, you know, if it wasn't Star Wars or something about aliens, I really didn't watch a lot of sci-fi. So I went into this literally the way that a critic should. No preconceived notions, no background knowledge, absolutely fresh. Mm. So the first thing I looked at it, which will be a discussion, I think, post this review, is the fact that it's two hours, 35 minutes. Mm. So when you get a movie that's two hours, 35 minutes, you got to have the time. And unfortunately, with a family and a six-year-old, I had to watch this in two chunks. But I don't think that it took away from anything. Now, the one part of it I got, and I knew going into this, was I'm not going to take every note. I'm not going to try to get myself into all of the storylines. Because I know from being a book and being a seasoned reader and movie goer, there's going to be stuff that's missed. There's going to be things that you have to assume. There's going to be things that you're going to have to puzzle together. And if you're a fan of the sci-fi genre, you can probably cobble it together. If you didn't know me coming in a little bit more fresh face to this, I was literally, I, I think I text Nathan three times. What's this? Huh? What's this part? Yeah. Huh? So that's where I came from. But, that's not an anti-bias to the film. I just wasn't familiar with the product. So the IMDb synopsis is, which is always scary to go by, feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element of the galaxy. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> Technically That's, true. Yeah, te technically true on a s extreme surface level. <laughs> <laughs> so it was directed by Denis Villeneuve. And Denis Villeneuve I knew from having uh, not that long ago watched Prisoners. Mm -hmm. And he did Sicario. He's done a lot. And he's also from Trois-Rivières, Quebec. So the fact that he was Canadian. Okay, I'll give this a fair shake. <laughs> um, starring Timothée Chalamet who was in uh, Lady Bird and Interstellar, among others. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who was in The Greatest Showman and a lot of the Mission Impossible films. Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Yeah. And an actress I wasn't familiar with, simply like Cher or Sting, it's Zendaya, uh, yeah. who was is, who is in Spider-Man Homecoming and The Greatest Showman as well, as well as some names you'll probably know uh, among them. It's a large cast. Uh, among them, Jason Momoa, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, Dave Bautista, Charlotte Rampling, et al. Oscar there's, Isaacs, yeah. Oscar Isaacs, yeah. There's there's a large list. It's, you know, this is one of those, you talk about an ensemble cast, this is an ensemble cast. So I'm literally going to re read you the notes, because it's been about a month probably since I've read it. So Emperor Paul Atreides, played by Chalamet, goes to Iraq to get some spice. <laughs> 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 which like, is, which was important to them apparently. So I had to figure out in my head what is this spice? You know, are we talking cinnamon or are we talking cocaine? You know, or something in between? I'm not. <laughs> it's <sure>. in between. <laughs> Somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. The first note I did is I did make was there's strong effects, 
and the strong cinematography. It is beautifully shot. Uh, Denis Villeneuve knows how to shoot a film. He's a veteran of the industry. I think he maximized his budget strictly just in the way it was shot. Now, Chalamet trains to be the leader of the, of the world and to go to battle. Uh, there's a cool box test that he passes. I thought that was a pretty cool scene. Uh, strong visuals, uh, strong use of light and darkness. There's an ominous score, which I think Victor could probably tap into. Uh, there's some really cool looking planes and cool looking helicopters. You get the sense of it being grandiose, which I think is the purpose of these types of films. It's all encompassing. It's large. And with a large cast, you know that it's going to be over the top at times. Uh, Chalamet and his dad come to Arrakis to get spice tells Freeman leader. He will only go in the desert if he needs to, uh, the desert and there's this cool desert sandworm. I, I thought that was a pretty neat effect. And the desert sandworm eats up the spice station. And I, I almost got some matrix vibes in the fights and bullet and kick scenes by Momoa. I got a little, a, a little bit of Keanu Reeves in there. Um, Momoa meets his demise, taking on multiple Harkonnen guards. It was a cool little scene. I like that. So, I was able to follow the general themes and overall storylines, but I was lost in a lot of the intricacies and detail of the story. Uh, I, I, and here's one note I think you guys will get a kick out of. Uh, one of the actors in there is Stellan Skarsgård. I thought Stellan Skarsgård was pulling his inner Marlon Brando with, <laughs> yeah. with a low, scratchy voice emerging from the mud bath, as in Apocalypse Now. I, I had flashbacks to that when I saw that. Totally. And, uh, I mean, Chalamet wins a desert battle and it was, it was a good, it was basically an adventure story, you know, and it's the rise of one and the defeat of another. It's a general theme that is cut across a lot of the films. You got your Star Treks and your Star Wars and a lot of adventure films. It's not one that you have to take down every note of every little thing. You can get the overall themes of it. You can follow it along. You know, if you miss five minutes here and there, you got to go run out of the room and come back. It's not going to kill you. But at the same time, if you've read the book, from what I understand, they missed a lot. It felt a little condensed. I actually, for the two and a half hours, normally I never say this, but I could have probably used an extra half hour just to... Uh, not water it down, but spread it out a bit more. So some of the details became a little clearer to me. So I would have actually advocated for a three-hour film. But It's I very would. rare that Bill does that, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it is very rare. But I think an extra half hour could have pulled it out. And I think people that are listening to me saying, Bill, what the hell are you talking about? Because they know the story. You two know the story. There are people here that intimately know the book. And I didn't even realize this is only the first half of the book. So... I enjoyed the film while I said it could go a bit longer. Other parts I found were a bit dragged out, not having a personal interest in it prior to, I didn't have anybody I was pulling for. I really didn't bother me either way. I just wanted to see an entertaining film. So I gave this, a, I, I believe I can't remember my letterbox. I think I gave this a seven out of 10. 
And that's what I'm going with. I'm, I'm curious what you guys thought of my analysis and or what your input is for this one. Victor, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I I think that I, I, I'm really glad that you uh, came at it from a, you know, I'm just a guy that wants to watch a, you know, an entertaining movie. Uh, and, you know, I think every movie that's made, every movie that goes through the process of being, you know, being written and staffed and, and a director attached and all, all that stuff. I think it has to be entertaining. It always has to be entertaining as well as whatever else, uh, you know, the filmmakers want to, to loop in there with the experience. But yeah, I, I, I agree. Dune is certainly that, um, the, the 2021 version. I, I am, um, a really weird case in that I'm also a fan of the David Lynch, uh, 1984 version of Dune. Uh, and also a fan of the book. Um, and I think the reason that happened was because I saw the David Lynch movie. It kind of went over my head, except for the basic story. Then I read the book about 10 years later. Then I saw this latest movie. And um, it's, uh, I, I mean, everything you you just said, Bill, is absolutely right. Uh, there are things that uh, Villeneuve, has left out of the of the book for or after, left out of the movie for narrative purposes and um yeah people have been saying for a really long time that this this uh, book was unfilmable and um i'm i i think that they are mostly right it's just that um you know cg has gotten so good that it at least has gotten to the point where visually it can match the experience of reading the book. But as you guys know, I mean, uh, exposition is much more forgivable in uh, text, in yeah. prose than it is in a movie. Um, you know, you kind of have to sprinkle little bits along with the action uh, <laughs> in a typical science fiction movie. And man, Dune is just a an information download, so much so that uh, Villeneuve left out uh, a lot of really important stuff at, at the uh, in the first movie. And uh, yeah, uh, Bill, I hear you on on the fact that it it, it left it left the the note it, it leaves is kind of unsatisfying, uh, and I think that's one big shortcoming of the movie is that it doesn't stick the landing. Even if you have two movies, um, you know you've you've got to you've got to have a, a bombastic ending of some sort in this. This is a space opera, like it's it's a grandiose creation, and there are plenty of moments where it could have been, uh, you know, dramatic to to end it, yeah. and they ended on something that is a little less than dramatic. It is an important scene, but it's important for reasons that haven't completely been revealed yet. So that is a tough ask um, for, for film goers to, to appreciate, but trust me, it's a great story. Um, a lot of things that are seem apparent from the, um, from the, from the movie aren't really the way you think they're going to be. They change later. Um, but, uh, it's, it's a really great story. And, um, and like you guys said, I mean, people have been you know, ripping Dune off for, you know, ever since the sixties in various forms. And, um, it, it's sometimes a great without story. knowing it. 
yeah, sometimes without knowing it, it's definitely in the public collective unconscious yeah. at this point. Um, and uh, it's just, yeah, it's got a lot of great, con- it's, it's one of those books where it's like every page or two has some mind expanding concept where it's like, whoa, you know, I got to think about that. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I'm curious on the poster, it says it begins Dune. <laughs> Is that to say there's going to be a Dune to it ends? Well, yeah, hopefully there will is that, be. There, there is. Yeah, the, the, yeah, at least the studio has promised it. The studio um, is planning on it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think if they're really smart, they'll they'll make Dune Part Two, release it as a feature film, uh, and then HBO, which is also owned by Warner Brothers, will yes. take over and the, they'll do the rest of the books uh, in a, a TV series. Because do you think? Do you think another two to two and a half hours will do enough to tie up the loose ends? No, I think it's going to be more like three. Yeah, I think so too. There's a good, that's the weird thing about where they ended it. And I'll get to my thoughts in a minute, but like, I think there's a something, a few scenes later, that could be a few scenes later that would have been a better place to end it. And it is sort of lopsided because it's just so much. It still has yet to happen. um, Story-wise, like on one hand, the transition makes perfect sense because it is the transition of the character and it's a transition of the setting and it's a transition of everything that it makes a certain kind of like, if I was graphing this all out or, you know, kind of laying it all out on the storyboards, it would kind of make sense. But I think emotionally it doesn't quite have the heft. Yep. And in just terms of that ending. But um, I'm like you, Victor, in terms of, I like the book, I like this movie and I like the 1984 uh, David Lynch, and actually, I even like the the two thousand sci fi Dune. Uh, oh yeah, and and the and the Children of Dune miniseries that followed it up that sort of took I think Dune Messiah and and Children of Dune sort of mashed them together a little bit. But uh, I thought uh, what's interesting about all of the movie versions is as weird as some of them get, and as low budget as the sci fi series was. There are certain sequences that if I were to show you the same sequence from all three movies, they retain the feel and the DNA enough that it's kind of the same scene, almost in the in the way that it's blocked and shot in a lot of ways. You know, I'm thinking of the scene involving the crawler, you know, the 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 mm-hmm. the, the spice trawler that the dude that Bill just previously mentioned when the Shai Hulud, the giant worm, uh, that also that makes the spice. In fact, the, the spice is sort of derived from worm crap, but uh, in, in a certain right. sense. And the when it attacks that uh, trawler and then Paul and everyone are above it and they're they're flying down to uh, to get the people on that trawler that that scene has the same feel across all three versions. Uh, I, I think it does. And in the way it, now it's most impressive in the 2021 version, yes. the 1984 version actually has, has David Lynch show up in that sequence That's as right. the guy in the trawler, which I didn't realize until the last time I watched it, arrows put a really cool 4k release of that out. And, and I, I had the same thing. I watched that first and when I watched that one in 84, I got everything Bill just said and weird shots of pugs, you know, like the way the, the, it, it, there's a sense that there's a vast epic story being told. I wasn't entirely sure what that story was. And uh, but the, the many of the of the the side characters are so colorful and over the top that in that one, Kyle McLaughlin, who, you know, this is prior to blue velvet. Like he's, he just sort of overwhelmed by everybody else, including sting and particularly Kenneth McMillan plays, uh, <laughs> the, the heart, the Harkonnen leader, Baron Harkonnen, uh, bill, the, the stone Skarsgård character oh, okay, yep. where Skarsgård is playing him 
like you mentioned, is kind of Colonel Kurtz, you know, kind of Brando-esque. Uh, McMillan, <laughs> what is McMillan doing exactly? He's uh, a little bit more like Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. You know, he's just like yeah. throwing his arms in the air and gesticulating and he's going all over. He has a suit that, you know, in the in the new version, the, the, the Baron suit sort of just lifts him into the air menacingly. And, and McMillan is literally <laughs> bouncing off the walls. <laughs> Yeah, his his uh, McMillan's technique in uh, 1984's Dune is just to yell almost all the time, like and sweat at, at the top of his yeah voice, and and just cackle and and he's it's just a totally different take on the same yeah. character. But the Baron's a brilliant character. So. Yeah, I like both takes honestly. I think, uh, and I think uh, Victor, you and I spoke about this. I think the the Skarsgård take where he's this sort of patiently waiting vulture, waiting to swoop in. Uh, and and the way they display him, he's more in keeping with how I envisioned him in the books. Yes. But if you the Dune, the Lynch Dune is worth seeing, I think, even if David Lynch is not particularly proud of that uh, final thing. And it's an interesting thing in that movie, Bill. You talk about how there's just so much stuff going on that in that one they literally did voiceovers. Like, and I think that a lot of it was at the behest of the studio, but it's just not uncommon to have a character on screen and they're staring at you. And the entire time you're hearing a litany of, of book facts. Right. So they're, 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 they're trying to fill in the gaps yeah. with overdub. And I thought Villeneuve did a kind of brilliant job. That is almost, he does it so well. I, I told someone recently, they're like, what did you think of doing? I said, it was almost so, it was almost exactly as good as I wanted it to be that it almost didn't feel special. You <laughs> Like if that mm-hmm. makes sense, like it, it, it meant every, standard i had for it but in so many other cases when i i really felt he was up to the challenge to do it there's other things like the the original fellowship of the ring movie stuff where i walked in i'm like oh gosh please don't be horrible you know and (laughs) then you walk out a little bit surprised and i think here it was just as good as i wanted it to be and it didn't quite hit the special but some of the things he's doing the ability to tell the story so it's almost like a visual guide to the to the novel without getting you completely lost i thought was kind of brilliant that he would he didn't result to all of these great like monologues and the weird part is trying to nail that uh, the benny Gesserit, who are these sort of space witches in the in the story here who have a vested interest in paul and who are trying to train him uh in these abilities that's a hard thing to get across without having a lot of exposition yeah. i don't know how you felt about it victor but i thought some of the most brilliant things that villeneuve did was the way he intercuts and lets us see how the power works in Paul's mind. Yeah. Uh, Particularly to where there's a scene towards the end where Paul seems to be seeing, and I don't remember this in the book, branching possibilities. uh, What we think is going to happen to one character doesn't happen because he is envisioning a whole separate chain of events where this character doesn't do something they're going to do. And therefore, you know, I don't know if you're, you're, you're privy to what I'm talking about, but towards the end, there is a a knife fight, if you will, and it seems like his he's getting images and visions of what would happen if that knife fight never occurred. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things it, it is handled rather nonchalantly in the book, where it it just describes Paul getting flashes of a possible yeah. future, and it's just like one line or something like that, because that's how much time the character s- stays thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but they make it into a a bit more of a of a thing with with no you, you know with with really no change in the in the look of the film and yeah. you don't really know at some points if he's seeing the future or 
just a dream in his mind or if he's seeing, uh, you know, the future that he wants to see, you know, and all that will be revealed or it should be revealed in part yeah. two. Um, but yeah, that's, I think Nathan, it's, that's exactly what is intended. And, um, yeah, one of the really cool things about the, the new movie, the 2021 movie is the, um, the legend of the Lizan Al Ghaib, which is not, really touched on much it's mentioned in the in the lynch movie but uh it's really cool concept where paul learns that the bene Gesserit sisterhood has seeded all these colonized worlds with a a, a sort of proto legend of the messiah and uh, his bene Gesserit mother coming to their world to set them free or you know to realize their spiritual uh you know, strength. And, uh, you know, Paul, when Paul learns this, he's like, Oh, great. So they, they don't like me because of who I am. They like me because you told them to, you know, but, uh, in, in the way things go in the movie, he starts kind of leaning into that at the, at the end, which I think is very revealing, uh, towards the, the overall story. And that's what I like. There's a naturalism to this because there was no naturalism in the in the in the Lynch version, and that's what makes it special. It is very surreal, you know. That's mm-hmm. what makes it fun to watch. And and in some ways, I like the scenes with the sandworms in the old '84 Dune. I don't know better, but they make they 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 have this great sense of wow, that would make a great painting on my wall, you know. And here, this thing, you get the feeling it's a real living, breathing thing, you know. There's a bit where he's looking down into it. And you can see the spines and all the biology of it. And it's like, wow, <laughs> you get this immense feeling of that's yeah. a, it's a giant, that's a big worm. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. Um, although uh, Villeneuve has in his movie that fantastic shot of the, the worm just like opening its mouth and it fills the entire yes, screen. That's the shot and, I'm thinking of. Yeah. And it, it looks disturbingly like a human eye. Uh, the, like the teeth are the little, uh, you know, accordion things inside the, the, the pupil. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and that's, uh, I, I just thought that was so brilliant because um, of course the, the spice and the worm and, and Paul's journey is all about sort of self-actualization and, and spiritual awakening. Seeing. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Touch. Hey, but, uh, I, I kept my take on this was kind of, it's kind of, of a, a perverse Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, totally. No, no, I think that you're right on the mark there. And I think that's what I wouldn't, that's why I was curious to hear your thoughts, Bill. Cause you were like, well, I'm not to say big side of a guy and I haven't read the book, but I, I, as a history buff, I feel like Dune is almost as effective, you know, cause it does have that sense of no, this didn't actually happen, but it's in some ways happened here in our world, you know, some yeah. of the, of what's going on in this storyline. And I think, I was going to say, cause there is a political angle to this. Oh yeah. A very yeah. big one in terms of yeah. like, you know, it, it's like, it, it's even a simplification to say, Oh, well, Paul goes to Arrakis or, you know, in, in reality, Paul and his father, uh, Leto, they go there to, to take over the planet from the Harkonnens. And yet there are political machinations behind why that's happening. The other thing I really was impressed with is he gets a great group of actors and they're really, I don't know if you feel this way. Um, we're not Victor and Bill, but there there really isn't overacting in this movie. I don't, I not, not too much that I saw. You know, no. um, it, even even when you get into a character where Momoa is playing Duncan Idaho, and it's kind of, you know, it's interesting to see how much, um, you know, he really does bring a, a charisma to the character that I like. And every time I see 
Momoa post Aquaman. I always wish that that Conan movie they had made with him was had been done later. Yes, <laughs> you know because now I look at him and oh, he'd be so perfect as Conan. Not that he was terrible. That movie wasn't particularly great, but he hadn't quite found his his pace, you know. And now I look at it, I'm like, give him a second, you know, like the the Ryan Reynolds Deadpool. Let him do Conan again. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's really fun in this movie. And he, yeah, he's the gonna, kind of more human side to everything. The other thing I noticed for an ensemble cast, they really spread the screen time around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there wasn't any one dominant. Like there's no, uh, you know, uh, Reeves as Superman or, ja- or Jack Nicholson as the Joker dominating. The, everybody got their fair share, I thought. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a very good movie. Um, I give it a I'd give it an uh, I'm going to give it an eight point five, and it would you know it's one of those deals where you really do need the second half. It's hard to see this as a complete movie, but it is so well done. There was no point I was really disappointed in it. Uh, there's other characters I even mentioned. I loved Josh Brolin's uh, take on Gurney, which uh, mm-hmm. you know in the old movie Patrick Stewart was Gurney, and he didn't have a lot of screen time here, but but Brolin is. Uh, you know, he's sufficiently grizzled and and grouchy. Uh, But there's nothing I really didn't like other than the kind of what you said, Victor, is that it, you know, it does just end in a sense. And it has so much the feeling of like a mini series that knowing that this, uh, that the other movie hasn't even been shot yet does raise a question. Are people going to be really ready for it when it comes back around, you know? Uh, and 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 will everyone still be in a place? You know, this is a movie that's going to be jarring if they don't get the same level of budget. If some of these actors pass away, Lord willing, that won't be the case. But you know, uh, that hopefully that doesn't happen. But you know, if anything kind of falls out of balance, it's sort of going to be noticeable. Yeah, I'm shocked that they didn't shoot shoot them simultaneously. Yeah, and I I, I can't think of too many instances where the story is this closely hewn together where they haven't done it. And I kind of hope that they do something, what you're talking about that if, when they do go back to shoot it, it would be nice if they'd found a way to roll in maybe, uh, you know, Dune, uh, Dune Messiah and some of those others and just film them directly afterwards. So they are still able, you know, that Chalamet isn't 54 or something you know, by the time yeah. we get yeah. down to the end of this. Now right. I'm curious, yeah, I was going to say, I'm curious with the two of you, because you both read the source material I would love to have read the scene where he does the test, the endurance test. H- how was that played out in the book? It's the same. Yeah, that, that's a scene that is lifted. Understanding what's happening with it, obviously, there's obviously there's a lot more surrounding that in the in the book. But um, I, that's another scene. You know, I mentioned if you were to watch that scene in this movie, in the '84 Dune, and then in the TV series. Uh, it's all kind of the same, you know, it has the same feel, even though three different people shot it. I think that's what's interesting is some of these scenes do feel like they're lifted pretty closely from the book. It's just that they're lifted with the scaffolding and not ev- not necessarily everything else that was holding them together. <laughs> yeah. There there's, there's some cool uh, dialogue between Paul and the Reverend mother Gaius, Helen Mohiam in the book where yeah. uh, it, it's almost like after almost you know, being like being tormented and almost being killed uh, by her, Paul immediately is respectful of her uh, when she explains the the purpose behind the test. And then he's, he's like, okay, I get it. And then that makes the Reverend Mother go, hmm, maybe this dude is the one, you know? 
Um, and that's it's a really cool exchange. And they do it kind of uh, just visually in in, yeah. in the uh, movie. And they, they handle a lot of stuff that way. But fortunately, you know, Charlotte Rampling and uh, Chalamet are both very good. So it, it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So seven point. Uh, no, it's not seven. Seven for you, Bill. I had an eight point five. Uh, Victor, what's your rating on Dune? I give it a nine. Very cool. Yeah, and and, uh, and I was going to say, I think mine suffers just from a lack of knowledge of cohesion. Yeah, I, th- I think we all agree it's a it's a very strong movie. It's a strong movie visually, uh, even in its composition. I love also even just the very first second of the movie when you have an audio cue there that was like i wasn't expecting that it was very yeah, very cool. cool and uh and it, there's a lot of little touches like that if you're someone who knows the books like and, and understands of course that you're not gonna get everything on the screen i have a hard time imagining you'd be uh disappointed with it if you have only seen maybe the 84 dune uh i could see you you know expecting something maybe a little bit different but i thought this was very well done i'm excited to see the second part and uh, and Villeneuve is, you know, he's uh, not missed for me so far in all of his films. Uh, there's some I like better than others, but I, I, as far as I'm aware, I've seen all of his work and I've liked everything he's done. And as a as a craftsman and as an artist, I feel like he just keeps getting better. Uh, not necessarily that this is his best movie. I do think he's done others that are better, but you can see him expanding what he's willing to try. And the thing with Villeneuve, I find, is his movies have a lot of detail. Uh, with character and plot point, you got to pay attention. Like Sicario was, you really had to watch. Yeah. Uh, Prisoners, not so much, but you know he's done a lot more, and he's done some in Quebec, obviously. But sorry, go ahead, uh, Nathan. But while also being very stylish, I think that's the one thing you don't often see in a director like this, where the the attention to the detail, attention to the characters in the story, and yet he has a very strong visual. Uh, sensibility to him and and something also that's kind of rare is the ability to take that sensibility and graft it onto someone else's vision uh the way the blade runner 2049 manages to look a lot like blade runner 1982 and then expand that world the way he's able to take the previous versions of dune and what uh herbert's put on the page and realize that into a tactile world like he's bringing the other artist along with him just as much as he is himself. And that's very rare to see, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think I, we uh, can naturally bring into another conversation. Is there anything else that anybody else has to say about the movie before we move on? No, no, no. I'm good. We're all, we're all pretty good with it. And the, the discussion I'm going to have right now that all of us are going to partake in is one that I've had many times with Nathan and I uh, discussed beforehand with, Victor. And that's the first thing I noted in the film, other than the cast and the director, etc., was the length. The length of this film is two hours, 36 minutes. And I think it leads naturally to a discussion of why do you think there's a trend for most movie creators to have movies that are two hours plus? Or why do they feel the need to have to do that these days? Because Back in the day, you go to a movie 90 minutes in out. You go back to the 50s, 60 minutes in out. Why naturally do a lot of the directors, do you think, is it a trend or is it here to stay, that if they want to make their mark, a movie has to be, you know, uh, two, two and a half, three hours? Why do you think this trend is continuing? Do you like it? Does it frustrate you? What are your thoughts? 
Well, um, I, as a guy who likes to watch movies, uh, I love shorter movies <laughs> uh, because that means I can watch more of them. But um, yeah, uh, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I would say just sky high view on that is in general, if the movie warrants a two and a half hour or three hour running time, that's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, like uh, James uh, Hancock said on the geek and channel uh, on youtube uh you know if you got the godfather that's great (laughs) uh but if your movie's not the godfather please make it 90 minutes or less (laughs) like i was thinking of i was trying to think of in my head recent ones that were longer obviously a lot of the marvel movies are two hours plus yeah you've got army of the dead which was like two and a half hours. It did not need to be two and a half hours. Yeah. I, I, you even go into the Ari Aster films, which are longer and they tell a story, but they are a time investment. And I mean, if you're going to the movies, sure. You want to maximize your $17 you paid to get in, but you also have other things you need to do. So Nathan, <laughs> what's, what's your take on this? Well, uh, as always, my take is, either you can view it as complex or convoluted <laughs> either one but my view on it is a uh there there are times when i want to see a shorter movie and there's times when i want to see a longer movie uh, a lot of that though there are times when i know the material and know i want to see something longer i would have been terrified uh if i had heard that dune was 80 minutes long even even part one <laughs> of dune was 80 minutes long because i would have had a sense they were missing something uh same. by that same thing i don't want to go to you know uh, some kind of goofball comedy in here that the new Adam Sandler movie is two hours and 50 minutes long. I mean, if you're uncut gems, okay. But, you know, I don't want to hear that there's a Hubie Halloween sequel that's, you know, two hours and 45 minutes. But uh, for one thing, there is, a, you know, every time we kind of get to a point where we lament that something is gone uh, a different way, you know, it's just getting worse or their movies are getting longer. Uh, certainly that's not the case. I mean, we remember when movies used to have intermissions. I mean, you name drop, and again, these are not all movies. You're right. Like uh, in the 40s, you can have a movie like The Cat People that's about a little bit over an hour by only a handful of minutes. And then you also have Citizen Kane, which is not. Um, yeah. And then, and even that isn't as long as it could be. I, I take your point. But the big epics, the the Gone with the Winds and the things like this, uh, Lawrence of Arabia that you previously mentioned, these are big, long, epic films. Even, even you know, a, a horror film like The Shining, granted Stanley Kubrick, you know, that's a a really long investment of time that you could you could argue the plot doesn't necessarily warrant however i think it's down to does the movie earn the running time are you doing something significant with that running time and that's when you don't mind being invested when the movie's giving you something so rich that you know it expands beyond it makes a the two and a half hours or the three hours that you spent watching it worthwhile and it expands enough that you want to go back and 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 have that three-hour experience again later that's that's very uncommon i think the problem i'm seeing now is we are getting movies that simply don't have enough content sometimes to fit within a 90 minute time frame Mm -hmm. let alone two hours uh 
I, a kind of brief mini review here. I just saw, I took my kids to see Ghostbusters Afterlife, which, which I enjoyed. Um, I won't get into a lot of it here, but it is a lot of nostalgia. There were things I did really enjoy about it, but the big difference, I think this movie's two hours long and I don't remember the exact running time of the original Ghostbusters, but there was a sensibility that there was almost not a moment wasted in that movie. And there's long patches of this movie where the movie just seems trying to find its footing that it's just sort of, kind of marking time because it needs to have a couple funny sequences. It needs to have a scene of this happening and that happening. And it's, I think sometimes when we make movies based off of a checklist or we've talked, uh, even when we were, we do our X files, uh, series that, that Victor's on, you know, we talk about like, sometimes when you have a writer's room or even just a, stu- a movie by committee is when, uh, movies tend to, uh, sprawl out. Even, even when they're only 80 minutes long or 90 minutes long, they sprawl out, uh, and have scenes there that don't necessarily belong, or maybe they're just there because that's how this, the, 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 it was test screened. And this is what the audience think need to be there. And that after a while, once you've seen the same thing over and over, that becomes tedious. I've seen, I've seen four hour movies where from a standpoint of the film, almost nothing happens and I've been riveted by them, but I've seen movies where everything happens and been bored to tears. Uh, you know, I did some certain action movies I can think of where everything possible is going on and I couldn't care less. So the way that works into the time is I, I think that we're the reason it's happening, I think is because we're having that weird melding where the realms between streaming has blurred the realm between TV and movie, uh, to such an extent that we are seeing excellent 10 or 11 hour movies done in a television format. Uh, that I would say is a movie, even though it's the length of a, almost a show. Uh, and then we're seeing movies that are stretching their story to something that will belong on television, but they aren't working within that episodic structure and they're missing things and they're, they feel half complete. A Dune has a little bit of that. So I don't know. It's, I think that is where, where, where we're seeing some of it, that the people are getting high, you know, you're getting directors, uh, Look at a look at a guy like Mike Flanagan who gets to make these house on you know the haunting of Hill House and he gets to make a midnight mass and tell this large story. Those are essentially movies that just last for five or six hours, you know, six, seven hours. And then when he goes and tries to then make a feature length film, there there are different things at stake. But we're the same directors. It used to be a TV directors and movie directors, the same directors are getting tapped to do all of this now. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 about their sensibilities, and and if your mind frame has always been you've been brought up to be a feature length director, and all of a sudden you're asked to do something for stars, or you're asked to do something for HBO, you're going to bring that sensibility with you, and it you know it obviously carries over. Um, I mean, the, the the one point I was going to make was like I didn't mind. I got engrossed watching three and a half hours of Das Boot. I couldn't get enough of that film. Yeah. But I don't want to watch Hagazusa ever again. <laughs> <laughs> it was just overindulgence and boring. So, I mean, that's a pretty obscure reference. But you get my point. There's movies that fit it and movies that don't. I just kind of find, and I'm not want to be get off my lawn kind of guy. I, I love cinematic everything. But if you don't need to be two hours and 20 minutes, why are you making it? two hours and 20 minutes. You know, if you can cut out 15 minutes of melodrama, cut out 15 minutes of melodrama. 
you know, I, I just find sometimes they stretch out just to stretch out. I would rather a tighter, a tighter story. Yeah. I think a lot of that happens because, um, production, uh, companies or releasing companies just aren't controlling certain directors as much as maybe they should. But in some cases the director's correct and they shouldn't shorten it, but you know, it, it's really case by case, like Nathan said. Yeah. And honestly, I'll, I'll say this. Yeah, I don't want. I I am at the point. Um, Bill sometimes say, "Well, I'm too far in. I can't. I have to finish now." I never feel that way when a movie. Um, <laughs> I was almost a. That's what she said, Stephen, wasn't it? Too far in. I can't finish. <laughs> uh, but you know, there, there's a point when if this movie's bad enough, I'm going to turn it off. I mean, unless I'm in a theater. And I've. But even when I was a critic, there was one or two times where I'm like, I gotta, I gotta bolt, guys. This is this is bad. Uh, and my threshold's high. But um, I think that the thing is, is most of these movies that aren't good at two and a half hours, a lot of times they wouldn't have been good at 80 minutes either. That's Um, true enough. (laughs) There's one or two cases I can think where a movie's like, you know, um, there's a couple Peter Jackson instances. Now, in those cases, in most of the cases, like, I I actually am a fan of the 2005 King Kong. Uh, Do I think it's too long? It is. I still like it at the bloated length, but I I could cut about 30 minutes, (laughs) you know. Uh, But I can't think of too many movies that, like, yeah, if this were shorter, it would be, you know, I still would have liked it. So I'm in favor sometimes of the law of, of letting people get the vision they want out there and then let the audience decide if it's worthwhile. Uh, the fact that they are greenlighting these movies and allowing them to be this long with these budgets, I actually like because it does increase the chances of us seeing some really good stuff that's in books get turned into movies that uh, that can honor that vision, you know. We yeah. talked about something like Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. I don't know that that will ever get made, but the world we're living in now, at least cinematic speaking and TV speaking, where it's a lot more likely that something like that would make its way to the screen intact. Uh, the more things like Dune that get right, the more chances we'll eventually we'll get a Dark Tower series that doesn't look like that movie that was released two years ago. <laughs> Right. It's funny that you brought up Kubrick. Could you not see in this day and age, 2001 being a five-part Netflix series? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think, yeah, 2001 is a case where, I mean, it was very meditative and slow-paced yeah. for its time. Um, but obviously, it's Stanley Kubrick, so he realized that people would not be accustomed to this sort of thing, but uh, he thought that would enhance the message, you know, the sort of universal philosophy of the movie. And I think he was correct, but um, it helped that a lot of people were enhanced in their own minds going into this. (laughs) It's an experience. It's an experience. Wow. The the reds are popping. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could say that also about, um, (laughs) uh, what the what was the movie made before The Shining? Oh, Barry Lyndon. Um, yeah, yeah. People didn't get high for that one, <laughs> um, but maybe they should have. But that is also very meditative. Um, it's a good movie. It's it's a it was a bomb at the time. I think it's a good movie. It's good. Yeah. It's good. It has a fantastic classical soundtrack. Um, there's a lot of great things about it, but uh, it is very slow um, and yes. it's very it's very hard to get into it. And the yeah. exposition goes on forever. So. Yeah, uh, eh, you know. <laughs> I, I guess I guess what we're tr- all trying to say is, if the movie warrants it, put it. Yeah. But if it doesn't need to yeah. be, don't. 
I'm not. I do think you know the, the Marvel movies. I think your point's well made, Bill. That they uh, that's the checklist thing. I think it's like every Marvel movie has to feature this, this, and this, and this. And so when a when a filmmaker wants to throw some more interesting things in, this movie, The Eternals, that recently came out, a lot of people were ragging on. It. I thought it man, this director managed to create some really interesting things you don't normally see in a Marvel movie, but she also felt compelled to include all the other stuff you always see. So, mm-hmm. you know, for as much as Wim Wenders, uh, the wings of desire is actually in the Eternals. There's a whole lot of people fighting, punch each other in the face with superpowers, <laughs> which, yeah, you know, I mean, so I mean, couldn't, couldn't some of those fight scenes be five minutes. Instead but, of but a lot minutes? of times I think the expectation is that's what they're going to see. The bombast, yeah. And the spectacle. So the, the Shang-Chi is another example that there's a director with a lot of stuff that they want to do. And they know they're only getting to do this because they're making a Marvel movie. And so we got to pay the piper. So I want 50 minutes of my cool art stuff in here. And you're going to watch 50 minutes of people getting punched in the face. <laughs> True enough. Yeah. And you know what? If you're paying that money and you want to hear the stereo sound and you want, yeah, you're going to get that. But, you know, it's, it, you know, I hope you have a strong bladder because you got to sit through the whole Well, now I think, though, Bill, we're going to talk about an 80-minute movie. I think. Perfect. (laughs) We're close to 80 minutes. That crams a lot into a runtime. Victor, I'm going to turn this one over to you and let you talk about The Spine of Night. Oh, The Spine of Night. Victor needs something. He needs to take a personal moment, too. It's it's okay with me. It's okay with me. (laughs) (laughs) The Spine of Night is definitely in contention to be my movie of the year. I can't tell you guys how much I enjoyed this animated uh, fantasy epic. It's just uh, clearly the filmmakers grew up watching the same movies and reading the same books I did. (laughs) Me too. Because, man, I just... I was like, my jaw was just on the floor for the entire movie. I couldn't believe that they made something so personal, you know, so so personalized to me. And right. You're like, for me, you did this for me, (laughs) for us. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It, it, and it, it really, it's more than that. I I just want to open this discussion by saying, it raised my expectation of what can be done in movies, in independent film, like that somebody wow. could assemble a team and make a movie of a vision to appeal to this narrow of a group and do it so brilliantly and get it distributed and get it on Shudder. I think it's coming to Shudder in a few, in a couple of months. Um, and, and all that is just astounding to me. And it makes me so happy to be living in the United States at this time, you know, it's just, it's just an incredible work. That um, it was able to do that last thing is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's an ambitious, um, it's an ambitious movie, but um, yeah. Uh, uh, how do I go about describing this movie? It's really hard to um, put it into words, but uh, basically it's um it's a movie about storytelling and um specifically it i mean it's literally about storytelling in the way that uh, the narrator hikes up this hill and uh, encounters a guardian figure and they start exchanging stories about the follies of this magical 
herb that uh, exists on the on the fantasy world. Um, and uh, the herb is basically um, it's a lot like uh, the spice in Dune. It expands consciousness. Uh, and it, uh, the only description they give it is you, you can dream what you want. And if you are under the influence of the herb, it gives it to you. Um, and, uh, that's of course, (laughs) anybody that's enjoyed, uh, as much dark fantasy as I have, that's a, a very, a double edged (laughs) proposition. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones is all about dark wish fulfillment. Okay, you want that? You got it. But it's not the way you wanted. You know? Sorry, Victor. I didn't mean to cut in. I thought you were going to say who's enjoyed as much absinthe as I have. <laughs> I have been known. <laughs> that, um, that too. <laughs> to imbibe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I mean, just to get it out of the way, I mean, there are some magnificent uh, trippy sequences in uh, the spine of night that uh, I mean, especially because it's animated are pretty amazing. And, and and I mean, there's some animated stuff that in that movie that I've seen done before and there's some that I haven't. Uh, and um, it's just really, it's really cool that they, that they, they went, they went there. Nothing, nothing is, I mean, it's an art film, but there's nothing that will say it's art for art's sake but let, let me just, I mean, the basic story is, you know, the storyteller and the narrator are exchanging stories as sort of the, this is the um, history of, of the world. And so it gets very philosophical about, you know, what is the world about? Like what, you know, what does the herb mean? Uh, what, you know, what does, uh, you know, is conflict important or is it just a waste of life? You know, all these questions come up and they're really just to, to talk about. Um, but it's never boring. Uh, it has an animated style that is instantly recognizable, which is another thing that kind of blew my mind. It's, it's like, well, clearly they've seen Ralph Bakshi movies and they enjoyed them. Um, but it doesn't really look like a Bakshi movie, even though they employ rotoscoping techniques it really looks like its own thing. And um, it, I mean, if I saw five seconds of this movie at a party somewhere, I would immediately know what movie it is. Um, it's, well, it's either this or the um, uh, the prequel that's available on YouTube uh, that's made by the same people. But Oh, there's a uh, prequel. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it basically tells a little bit more about The Guardian. And, okay. Um, is it just like a short film or? Yeah, it's a short okay, film. Cool. It's done in the, exactly the same style. I, I assume that that was the that was the piece that was the the resume piece that okay got that allowed them to, to do play. this. I, I yeah. will find that and put it in the in the show notes of uh, the YouTube piece. Yeah. A great great music in this. It's sort of um, a combination of fantasy, like what you'd expect in a fantasy, like fantasy orchestral music and metal. Um, it's it's almost like ambient metal, kind of like uh, Mandy was. Yes, uh, yeah, that's a, a good bit. comparison. Yeah, uh, really exciting stuff. Um, great voice talent. You got uh, Richard E. Grant um, <laughs> from one of my favorite movies with Nail and I. Um, good uh, good I movie. I you going to say good Warlock. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we want the finest wines known to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. Such, um, such a good movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I, I was going to say, I also see he was in Doctor Who. A couple of the Doctor Who's. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
He's been the yep. bad guy, and he's done voice work where he actually was the doctor. So he's been on both sides. Yes, <laughs> indeed, he's fantastic, and yep. he's he's great. And he's so good that I didn't even recognize his voice. Um, yeah. I had to look it up. Yes. So uh, Lucy Lawless is in it. She's that's she's the narrator. Um, let's Cat let's so, let's make sure everyone knows this. Lucy Lawless is a naked swamp witch. That's oh right. boy, oh boy, and boy is she not afraid to share all. Uh, yeah, and you know they're they're not afraid to uh, loop in feminist themes in this, yeah. which has been uh, sadly lacking in a lot of fantasy from the eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, this was made by men as well, so I don't know what excuse those other guys have. Yeah, and there's um, a, it's about a flower, but there's also a lot of bush. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's equal opportunity. Yes. Um, yeah, of Patton Oswalt's in it, Betty Gabriel from uh, you know Get uh, Get Out, and uh, Joe Manganiello and uh, Larry Fassenden. It's it's just a it's a I mean all my like some of my favorite actors are are in this movie. Incredibly, <laughs> I'm still giggling just because I'm I'm thinking of Patton Oswalt's exit from this movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and about that, um, the movie is insanely violent. Um, yes. so this yeah, is not I mean, for it's, kids. It's not, it's not the type of violence that is super ugly. Like it's not like a yeah. clockwork orange or anything like that. It's, it's, it's heavy not, metal magazine violence. It's, exactly, it's, uh, exactly. Conan the it's, barbarian, but I don't know if we've even quite mentioned this. I know you mentioned it was a fantasy Victor, but I don't know if we even quite got through go, over the fact that this is really like a medieval sword and sorcery setting, like to yeah. the story. Yeah. Sword and, and sorcery. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah it's, I, uh, I was going to say, as I was watching this, I was trying to think, is there a link to these stories? And I was just like, I just gave up. Not really. <laughs> I, I, I thought that there was. I yeah. thought that there. I thought that the one of the things that uh, I thought the the movie Heavy Metal, which was obviously a style guide for this movie to some degree. Yes, um, yeah. I, I thought that looked a, a bit more, or that was a bit more. Uh, sort of sh- pieces were shoved into place. Haphazard. Yes. Or not. Yeah, and and I felt like the the story of the guardian and the swamp witch slash narrator uh, unified this in a more pleasing way to me. But um, but uh, you know that goes back. I think that goes back to my love of sword sorcery. Like you know, I grew up reading the novels of Michael Moorcock and uh, you know playing Dungeons and Dragons. And and this movie really captures that kind of stuff in a yeah. way that I have not seen. Um, yeah, and. The 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 they're, the way magic works in this uh, movie is also really compelling uh, and very un un D and D like. But it, it's you know the 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 rules that they must have mapped out before they started uh, cell shading is, yes. is staggering. You know, um, but anyway, that's that's about all I have to say about it. But I loved it. <laughs> Yeah, you have Victor. You have been telling me about this movie about since when you'd heard it, about it somewhere during the summer. And the minute you described what they were doing, I thought hey, we I definitely have to see this. And then it's kind of fortuitous that uh, Dave Becker and I over in the Illustrated Fan were doing a couple of Bakshi movies, particularly fantasy ones. We did Wizards and Fire and Ice, and I saw Fire and Ice probably like about two weeks before I saw this movie. Ooh. And Fire and Ice is almost like it's a good comparison guy because on paper, you, what they're doing here is similar but as you pointed out it's very different too uh and my my reaction to both movies is a little bit different because of that and i thought you know what they did with this and the amount of story they got into this 
And I think one thing that we can mention, because then Jason Widgington reviewed it too, and he was talking about Fantasia movies. The thing that he told me that also got me excited was that that wraparound framing device you're talking about, you know, the thing about this flower is that it is dying. You know, the bloom is about near its end. And so the Guardian, you know, it's like we're in the potentially the last days of this magical item, and they're here telling stories about it. And those three stories, though, you know, those segments, they do, Bill, I think, ultimately tell an interesting story about one character who's gone from being one kind of person. You know, there's a character who starts as a scholar and becomes something else. And that kind of, in some ways, even though the story is never told from his perspective, you know, it's kind of his story in a way as well. And I think that he's, you know, he and the flower, of course, are sort of the, uh, the, the, the tendrils that snake through all three of those segments, the segments that are there. But the style of this, the way it's done, the way it's visualized, it's like you said, Victor, it, it uses the rotoscoping. It has very similar kind of, you know, not afraid to show nudity, not afraid to show violence. A whole lot of battle sequences occur, and then characters are, aren't afraid to kind of stand around and just wave their hands and talk, you know, and have conversations. Uh, those things are in present in both movies. But the difference, a good example is, let's talk about Lucy Lawless's witch for a second. We mentioned that she's she's nude for that entire movie. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. she has accoutrements, but they don't cover very much. Uh, her head she's has wearing, more. wearing a skull. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's wearing more stuff on her head than any other part of her body. But if you compare the way she looks to the female character in Fire and Ice, who did it have at least some semblance of a bra and stuff in there? I mean, that character is total cheesecake, you know, exaggerated curves. And Lucy Lawless has a mom bod a little bit, you know, not, not real Lucy Lawless, Lucy Lawless Swamp Witch. She has a natural person's body and the way that body moves. Uh, and she doesn't, you watch this character the entire time. She is, like I said, hundred percent naked, uh, but she doesn't ever feel sexualized. I didn't think right. so. And I think in that moment there, are there titillating moments elsewhere with other characters? Sure. There are, but, I thought that was one of the things that felt sort of natural and interesting about this movie. Same way for the guardian. You kind of expect a certain thing from him and he's not quite that. And it's a combination of the way he's animated. It's a combination of the voice work. Uh, and it creates a different kind of fantasy movie. I didn't sit there and keep thinking. It's like you said, Moorcock's a good uh, comparison. I'd also even compare him to, uh, or compare it. The old, the, the effect of it, uh, Richard Adams who wrote Watership Down and the Plague Dogs, which were turned into very creepy, 70s animated films uh also wrote a book called shardek and i don't know if you ever read it uh victor no it's a fantasy epic dealing with uh there's a character who goes into the wilderness and there's a forest fire and draws this great bear uh bigger than most bears and this guy comes across it and decides it's a god and we're going to take it down to the 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 city below and people are going to worship it and he's going to start a whole new he's going to overthrow the religion that's there and he's going to set this bear up as a god and i would have said i probably just like dune being unfilmable it's a movie that i thought or a book that i've never would they be able to film it and the minute i saw the spine of night i thought wow i would love to see these guys take on a story like that and yeah. it's kind of that. It's epic and sprawling, and it yet it's intimate at times. And yet it is still a sword and sorcery hack and slash. Yep. Yep. But I see. But I, never, I, 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 go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say it, it. Just it never remains satisfied with that. Uh, I mean, the, no. There is a lot of hack and slash stuff, but it only lasts a scene or so, and then they get back to expanding your mind. <laughs> and there's some Lovecrafty and existential dread all through this thing too. Some great moments that would be yes. 
well welcome in a in a in, in, i'm not talking tentacles and stuff like that i'm talking about the essence of sort of lovecraft i think yeah see i i came on this again much like dune i didn't want i didn't play D growing up uh, i still never played a game uh and i didn't grow up with this style of film to watch so like i i've seen the conan films and things but i, I didn't i haven't i've maybe seen a dozen animated films in my life other than kids movies so mm-hmm. i came on this again with a blank slate very much like dune it was an interesting film i it, it, like nathan had really been pushing bill watch this film bill watch this. okay <laughs> so the first three minutes Opens with a naked woman climbing a snowy mountain barefoot. All right, game on. Let's That's go. how I got Let's him to watch it. I was like, Lucy Lawless animated naked from the start of the film. He's like, okay, good start. But, but I mean, there's lots of, I mean, I agree with you as well, Nathan. Yeah, she's nude and she's got big honkers and stuff, but <laughs> it, it almost had that natural Conan the Barbarian where. Arnold wasn't wearing much either, but you didn't think anything of it. That was just their natural state. Exactly. And that's kind of the way I got with her feel. It was just her natural thing. You know, like it wasn't, you know, like she wasn't doing it to, you know, allure the men or whatever. It was just the way she was. Lots of violence, lots of gore, lots of fighting. I like that part of it. I like the storytelling aspect of it. And and not having much of a background in this, I kind of just went with it. I didn't try to necessarily connect the dots or figure out all the intricacies because I knew you guys would fill in those gaps for me. And the one thing that that struck me was it almost seemed to me like, and you guys have described it, there's almost two levels of animation where some of it looked like 80s haphazard. And then when they showed the castle, it was kind of more intricately done. Hmm. And I, that is that, is that a style of animation? where part of it looks a little rougher and then part of it looks a lot nicer. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that's kind of like uh, anime. Um, that's that's sort of that style. And even Bakshi, because a lot of times so the, the parts you're talking about, Bill, was almost close to a matte painting, you know, uh, where you're, you're these very detailed sort of paintings or images. And uh, particularly, I think Fire and Ice had that, where you've got some of the Frazetta stuff going on and then the boxy stuff going on. And sometimes there was a disparity between those two in, in that movie. I don't think it's as big in this movie. I will say there are a couple places where I wanted, you know, they were dealing with sort of flat colors in certain sequences uh, that, that was definitely the style of the rotoscoping where they didn't want to give too much detail that I thought did hinder a couple of scenes. I'm thinking of a scene where there's a person sinking into a bog, but it really just looks like you've got disembodied hands and a face in the middle of a big gray slop, you know, like it's a big gray, like the screen is completely just gray. And that's a one moment where I kind of went, I thought to myself, Oh, you know, and I, a little more detail here would have been kind of nice. There's a couple of scenes like that, but I, overall, I think the movie's beautiful. Yeah. And I did get that. I did pick up on the Lovecraftian end of it, especially there's, one, it gets really trippy where there's a man with a magical eye in his belly. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, you, I could see that being in uh, uh, with Nick Cage, you know, Color of Night or whatever. I can see that. Color out of space, you know, like that kind of deal. Sorry, go ahead. And to bring that, that you know, Mandy was mentioned earlier, and then you just mentioned, you know, the, the Color out of space. 
Mandy had a couple of animated sequences, if you remember, you know, where sort of imagining the world that Mandy was drawing in her book, you know, this right. this fantasy story. And, uh, you know, which involved tigers, although the, the, the live action movie involved tigers, too. But, you know, there were these sequences that looked like they'd be out of a heavy metal cover. And when you get to the later elements of Vast of Night, a lot of if you're thinking, what does it look like? It looks a lot like that, uh, except expand that into a feature. And particularly, you know, for everything I said about those couple of moments where I'm like, oh, this image is a little more flat than I would have liked. The stuff towards the end, when you really start to see what the what this flower what this herb can do and what what it causes and when you start to see the the film's version of of an apocalypse uh, it's pretty wild looking it's pretty trippy it's it's one of the most visually interesting things i've seen in a movie this year i I made note that there was some really nice calm music as opposed to the heavy (laughs) metal when when you see that the civilization is burned it was a nice calming almost ambient type the last thing i'll note is at at the end there is some zombie warriors that come out which, you know, it doesn't surprise me. My mind went to Tombs of the Blind Dead at that point in the movie. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> mind went to Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's true. I also I also made yeah. note of Harryhausen, but mm-hmm. my first thought was Tombs of the Blind Dead. <laughs> so I jumped in for me. I could see that, too. And, yeah, I think I think what you guys are referring to is the color palette. Like, it's it's because I think they it's something that you guys just said really triggered this in my mind because the 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 flower is sort of this bright blue um they they have the whole color palette of the movie yeah uh you know complement that it's like purples and violets and and uh you know colors like that and uh kind of like they did in Mandy and what what really occurred to me in Mandy was that they were sort of taking the color palette from Richard Corbin's art who was yeah. a, a frequent contributor to heavy metal and he the den sequence in the heavy metal movie is is from him um and if you look at cells from that from that story you'll i'm sure you'll see a lot of similarities so then uh, victor what would you give this out of 10 i would give it a 9 out of 10 what, what, what says you nathan i'm an 8.5 just like uh with dune i'm very close to i mean I've watched this, watched this thing three times now, and I I can imagine it. But the end of the month, or whenever we record our best of the year, it could be closer to a nine point. I it's a great it's a great movie. It's really a fun movie. I think it does everything you'd want it to do. I, I think there will there are people that won't like it. I think there will be, but I think if you appreciate a lot of the things that we've been talking about here, if you grew up playing D anD D or you grew up with any of this sort of, you know, this sword and sorcery fantasy. If you were one of the, hey, Beastmasters on kids, you know, you know this, uh, yep. this, this applies and I love it. I, I, I bought it like sight unseen the minute it hit Amazon. It's, it's only $10 right now. I just totally to, to buy the, the high def copy. The only, the only caveat is I know that if, uh, if one of those, uh, uh, boutique, uh, producers releases of vinegar syndrome or a shock factory or shop factory release this in some special edition i'm buying it too. oh yeah so um it's a it's a great movie if you're a fantasy fan um and even if you're not a fantasy fan if you like far out visuals if you're if you like those crazy visual movies this is one for you yes like i again this isn't my jam uh this isn't anything that i grew up with i have no nostalgia towards it so i went at it pretty fresh 
having said that, I really appreciate having watched it. I really kind of like the stuff. I I got the sense that Patton Oswalt was having a blast. Yes, doing this. <laughs> he does a lot of voice work. A lot. Yeah, voice like work. you could tell, you know, he maybe had a beer beforehand. He's enjoying himself. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's you know, he's he loves being this evil douchebag king. He likes, he loves it. You know? Flamboyant, you know, Flamboyant, almost in the yeah. Kenneth McMillan mold. Yeah. You know, and there's and there's a, a couple scenes I really love the people being sliced in half. I, <laughs> I, I love those scenes. Yeah. Um, I give this a solid seven out of ten. I don't know that it'll make my top ten because I don't have the same preconceived, not preconceived, uh, emotional attachment that you two have. But I do definitely like it. And I do get that Lovecraftian, bluish, reddish, hazy. And that's my jam. So I can definitely recommend this film. Yeah, yeah, a good one. And before we move on to the, the next movie, um, and I do like that we're kind of taking some time to delve into these. Victor, you made an observation. And one of the reasons we kind of paired this with Dune is there are a lot of similarities between these two storylines. Oh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean the, the the kind of character of the the bloom is very similar to the spice in that it's it's just there. It it's colored by whoever uses it, uh, and um, uh, the fact that it's so important to resolving conflict, uh, all that I think comes comes through, and and you know the fact that we're in the fantasy realm in both movies, and um, yeah. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot and I mean, there are tyra- there are tyrannical leaders. Well, and I think that people. that element is actually interesting when you when you try to compare it to something like Dune, and you have you know a little stretch a little bit, but you do have this order of witches centered around the kind of both worship and protection, and even exploitation of the flower, you know, of the of the the fantasy element, the the, the magical element. Whereas Dune sort of tells this foretold story about this Messiah that comes to save the world. And you see the, the arc of that character. This is the, this is the foretold and, uh, and executed story of the tyrant. That's going to burn the world to the ground. You know, he starts as an unassuming guy that looks like he could be the hero of the story. And then he goes in a different direction and the, the movie follows him from, you know, it follows the witch, but it follows, uh, by extension, him from the beginning to the end, yeah. and it's like the all the the alternate story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean the other part of it of that links the two is they have stories that go all over the place. They, they, they vastly expand here and there, yet they come back together at the end. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say like a, there's a steampunk element later in yes. Spine of Night, which reminds yes. me a lot. It reminds me a little more of the maybe the Lynch Dune, but um, but still, I, I, I get that. I, I could I could see somebody pulling that from the Dune book. So yeah, it's, it's very cool, and I actually do appreciate that some the the, the breaking up of the chapters allows the emphasis on the characters to be different. So you get to see it, you know. From, from these different perspectives. So like this third story, or there's a segment in there where you're watching this group of basically the revolutionaries, right? You know, uh, yeah. they're, they're the resistance and they're coming in on this, you know, they're hell bent on the one last ditch mission to, to, to succeed, to over, to overthrow tyranny. And that story is kind of cool and contained, although it is clearly playing in, to the larger overall story and you kind of get into these characters and things like that. So yeah. Um, high recommendation for me. 
I'll put a link to it in the show notes where you can get again. It's on Amazon. You can rent it for seven. You can buy it for ten. Uh, I would definitely recommend. You know, this is one I'd say it's a buy. Uh, the only thing would be, and if you want to wait until it's on Shutter in a little bit, and then you know, save your money for for when we have a cool physical. If if you're into physical copy, I like physical media still. But some people, if you're a cord cutter, just go buy it for ten dollars now. You will you won't miss you won't miss it. Uh, the fact that in two or three weeks it's on Shutter, so. Yeah, I, I, I like physical stuff too uh, for certain movies. Um, yeah. But uh, and I am kind of running out of space. But man, if I have to throw away a DVD or give it away to fit this in, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good one. I'm excited that it exists, and I'm excited, really excited to see more from this group, um, who who yeah. I believe contributed to previously Love, Death, and Robots. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think the the art the the art guy, like the animator, um, and one of the writers is new. Like he he just had that prequel. That's like I said, it's on it's on YouTube. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but if you just look up Spine of Night, you probably find it. Um, and uh, Philip Jalot is the um, is the other writer uh, who did love death and robots. Like he scripted almost all of that. And he has a bunch of original stories in, in the, at least the first series of love death, death and robots. And I think he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so the next movie we'll talk about, it might be one of the, you know, um, given, given how we're hitting about 30 minutes per movie here. Might be one of the the last that we do talk about, which is fine. Even if we only we talk about three movies, uh, and that is another movie that I saw a little bit ago. You know, most of these movies I did see back in October. Uh, this is a, another movie that was on my like must see list, anticipated list. Uh, last night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright, and Edgar Wright has had a, you know, obviously he did Shaun of the Dead and it was kind of his like calling card and everybody kind of loved it. Uh, and after that, you had Hot Fuzz, you had uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, Baby Driver, a couple of the movies in there. And uh, the last of that, that uh, trilogy too, I think it was the, um, was it the end of the world was the title of it? Yep. Uh, they were there on the way yeah. to the pub. Yep. Um, and I, I enjoyed that one too. And uh, there are elements of Edgar Wright. I think he's a really, uh, he's got a really cool eye. He has a really cool way of putting movies together, of using all elements of a movie. Uh, of, of Really, one of his strengths is taking the way he incorporates music into a film, yeah. makes it a character, or uses it to tell you things about the characters, or just use it to supply the overall mood of the film. A lot of times I feel like people don't know. And Victor, you go speak to this better than I can, but there are sometimes people who I don't think know how to use mov- music in movies. And the one thing I don't think you can say about right is uh, that it's one thing he absolutely does know is how to use uh, music and particularly already existing music to really uh, the benefit of his films. Uh, that being said, I haven't loved every single one of his movies. Some of his movies have felt a little indulgent and watching the trailer for last night in Soho told me two things one hey he looks like he's trying to make a horror movie or, or something that's a little different than what he's done before and two yeah. this has the opportunity to be really indulgent <laughs> potentially <laughs> and yeah. uh so i walked in with a little bit of concern and i was starting to see some reviews and even a personal friend told me was like wow that movie i feel like i don't have the the visual vocabulary to understand that film he was pulling from so many different things and so i walked into it sort of uh 
a reticent and I, I will just go into the the basic plot uh though I don't want to say too much about it because I think one of the, the benefits of this film is not knowing a lot about it and, and or even exactly what kind of film it is because as it unfolds, it does sort of, in my mind, it, it, it changes course a couple of times. and uh, But it does involve uh, uh, Eloise, they call her Ellie Turner, who really is into the 60s, that, that British image of the swinging 60s, you know, and she wants to be a fashion designer. In the opening of the film, she's living in Cornwall, uh, out in the countryside with, uh, it's her grandmother. So we realized that her mother at one point had longed to move to the city, had done so, and, you know, it didn't go so well. And then we also realized that her mother is not uh alive at this point that doesn't mean that she's not with ellie because ellie keeps seeing i don't think it's much of a spoiler to say in the very opening scenes of this film ellie sees her mother uh whether she's an actual ghost or a figment of of ellie's imagination we're not entirely sure but we do understand that there's a certain sensitivity to things that ellie has that makes her grandmother concerned uh about her moving to the city and sort of going there to attend this fashion school and she has this this elevated image of what living in london is going to be like and again her basic uh her only real reference points are her visions of what what it was like in the 60s not that she was there but just all of all of the music all of the things that she watches and does and engages in are, are fetishizing in a sense that period of time for her so when she moves to London and she's the London College of Fashion. And as soon as she gets there, uh, the reality is very different than what she thought. And she's, you know, she's put into a room with probably the worst possible roommate I could even <laughs> even <laughs> conceive of having. Uh, although, uh, you know, she's this kind of stuck up mean girl uh, who is extremely insecure, which makes her extremely uh, jealous and dangerous as a result. Uh, particularly somebody who kind of stands out a little bit. And uh, she, of course, has her little uh, group of admirers who sort of, you know, uh, surround her. And that obviously puts Ellie even more on the outs. And it isn't long before Ellie is like, I can't live, I can't live here. And she ends up finding this small little uh, apartment or a room at the top of an apartment that is run by an elderly lady who is... Uh, played by uh, Diana Rigg and I, but I pretty much uh, understand to be her final role, you know, before she passed. And uh, of course, Rigg was from, you know, originally you go back to the Avengers when she's Emma Peel. Others might recognize her more recently from Game of Thrones. She was in Game of Thrones as well. Yeah. And uh, she's really good here. She's the kind of nice, unassuming landlady who you do get from the get, the get go. You're sure that I don't think you're telling me everything there is to know about this apartment which uh, becomes sort of clear when Ellie realizes that she's going to sleep at night in this apartment and she is having what one would assume to be a dream, but it is so vivid. It's almost like a lucid dream. She is back in the 1960s and yet she is following along in someone else's body. She is basically uh, in a sense, she's a participant or an observer, not a participant, uh, an observer to this woman's life. And the way it's visualized is very interesting because we see it through the eyes of this actress who's now played by Anna Taylor-Joy, and yet Ellie is inside of the mirrors. So when we see the mirrors in a room, we see Ellie sort of creeping along, uh, usually right across from where 
the Anna Taylor Joy character is. And this story follows another young woman who is, she's come to London to make her debut. She wants to be a singer. She wants to be a star. And she ends up uh, in the orbit of a kind of shady character played by Matt Smith, but you're not quite sure exactly where he stands and whether he has her best interests or not at heart. And from there, the movie kind of keeps swapping back and forth. Ellie will wake up the next morning being influenced by things that she's seen happening the night before with Sandy, who's the Anya Taylor-Joy character. And it goes back and forth like this. She's, uh, she realizes, too, there's sort of a mystery to be solved here. That things aren't exactly uh, copacetic in the past. Things seem to be getting worse. And that's bleeding over into the current day where Ellie starts to realize that potentially some of the creepy characters that were hanging around in the 1960s may still be living in the vicinity of where she she lives and works. And she's starting to see supernatural images that are haunting her and pushing her towards uh, uncovering the truth of whatever it is that happened back in the 1960s. I don't know if you guys feel that uh, that's too much information or not enough, but I think it gives you the basis for where this movie is headed without really uh really putting it all out there for you there is definitely an element of a mystery there's a sort of feel in the visual palette that reminds you of giallo italian giallo movies but also to mm-hmm. me i was reminded more of movies like uh uh don't look now uh with donald mm-hmm. sutherland and movies like that that the sensibilities that are in the in that film are in this one but also there's a really fun style to this movie there's a lot of dark subject matter it goes some dark uncomfortable places but even before anything that would resemble horror and i want to point out i don't quite view this entire it is a horror movie but as we've mentioned with some of these other films it's a lot more than that too and the horror sort of builds slowly and is never as upfront as somebody might be expecting uh because when you're first watching this movie there's almost a like a midnight in Paris time travel kind of vibe to what's happening, a wish fulfillment of someone who really, really wants to have lived in this particular time. And then we see that sort of curdle and turn into a nightmare. And I think that one of the things that can be said about Wright in this film is he makes this movie not look like any of his other movies. I don't think it resembles very closely anything he's and not that there aren't elements, but this looks like a different kind of film. And it also doesn't look to me like just a shot at, uh, making something look retro, copying someone else's style. I feel like this movie has its own identity. I was very happy to spend time in this world, even when things start to get pretty creepy and pretty strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's fantastic. It's, um, I mean, I don't, I like you, I don't like every movie that Edgar Wright's made, but um, I totally agree with your uh, assessment about how he handles music and and how he's a really, he, he makes very tight movies um, that are, I think the cutting of his movies is just brilliant. Yeah. And um, yeah, one thing that's really cool about Last Night in Soho is that it follows the form of British movies from those days, like from the 60s, yes. like Hammer uh, where it's like, yeah, it starts out as a mystery and then it's a thriller and then you st- you kind of get to the horror towards the end. Um, and uh, I thought that was just absolutely brilliant. And the the soundtrack is memorable. It's a really cool period in history. I mean, London yeah. was the center of the world in, in the in the 60s. 
uh, artistically, at least uh, culturally, probably as well. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, the music's fantastic. It's got some rare cuts and some cuts that you'll recognize also, like She's Not There by the Zombies is in there. And downtown. <laughs> yeah. Downtown, <laughs> yes. I was going to say, um, I wonder if the record sales got a bump. Oh yeah, one would hope. Um, I'm sure the the when they were licensing the music, the filmmakers that's what the filmmakers told the record companies. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, and maybe maybe they're right. To what you're saying, Victor, some of these songs and even some of the deeper cuts that you're talking about, they are employed in this movie. Even something like Downtown, which is in like the, it's overused. It's not as overused as say, you know, Hallelujah, but it's it's somewhat overused. Uh, but it's memorable here. Like, I feel like the next time, next few times I hear downtown, I'm going to think of this movie and the way it's used in this film, um, particularly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that or uh, Seinfeld, that um, episode. That, uh, <laughs> I, I actually George. referenced this. My last note was best use of downtown since Seinfeld. Since Seinfeld. Yeah. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the other one I think of actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think too, it lost when they finally opened that stupid hatch. The first thing you heard was the song downtown. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, uh, like, like when they, they, they finally show you what's down inside that hatch. Uh, and the, so it was memorable in that, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I love this and I think the performances are really good too. Uh, Thomas E. McKenzie is, uh, Ellie's really good as a really great sort of sensibility to her. And she plays off of, uh, the way Anna Taylor joy is playing Sandy. I like that dichotomy, even though they're not really in scenes, they're not interacting in scenes together, I should say. And it, yeah, Matt right. Smith, you know, I, I think for someone who's a doctor who fan, you kind of go back to doctor who. Um, but I think he did a good job here with the character. That's not entirely as fleshed out as I might've wanted it to be, but that allows him to play around with it a little bit. It's great to see Terrence stamp and to know that Terrence stamp is still alive. Uh, yeah, I was, I, I was going to yeah. say, I messaged uh, Nathan. I said, is he still alive? Wow, it appears that he yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, but he's, <laughs> uh, he's good. Sod. Yeah, it's always great to see Stamp. And I like to, and I, I was happy to see him here in a role that has, you know, um, th- there's a purpose here. And he, he plays what he's supposed to be doing, like I thought, perfectly. So, yeah, yeah. I liked it. I mean, the, the movie opens up with that soundtrack, as you say, is the old Peter and Gordon song, World Without Love. And I thought it, I thought it said it really well. You know, this is one of those films. If you're looking and you heard the reputation of it being a horror, you're going to have to wait a bit on it. But at the same time, the story builds and builds and builds. And this is one of those movies that, you know, you can argue sci-fi. You could argue a bit of romance. You could argue a, a fantasy time loop, time travel, trippy but definitely horror in the last act it's it's you gotta go for the journey and this one's just about two hours and i think it makes good use of its two hours yeah i mean the 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 soundtrack is awesome the story does build a bit it's shot very stylishly and i want i i think the one overarching theme we have for all three films is the hues of blue and red (laughs) and the soft the soft way that it's shot, I think all of them have that element to it. But it also has, you know, there's moments of surreal. There's moments, there were moments I had to sit and go, uh, what? You know, like you had to connect the dots. But at the same time, it's not like one of those films with 
5,000 plot points. And there's two to three, but you just have to make sure you're, you know, yeah. what reality you're in. Or an Argento yeah. film where those plot points never come together. <laughs> exactly. No, where they just, <laughs> you sort of have to finish the dots yourself and move them over. And not um, only do you have to finish the dots with Argento, they're just as trippy. So yeah. it's all over the place. Yeah. But, but I was I, the one negative I did put is I did find it at times disjointed, but you have to stick with it and it'll eventually get there. But, you know, like they're, they're not going to connect the dots for you. Yeah, And some of that disjointedness is purposeful, I think, in the to put you in, to go back to the don't look now analogy, to put you in the sense of a character who is sort of, um, you know, a little naive, uh, is out of her element and is obviously in a situation that is sort of extraordinary and is kind of experiencing some dissonance that is starting to affect her mental perspective. And so I think in that middle sequence is when we're supposed to question whether this person themselves is going mad or not. I think that the way Edgar Wright sort of cuts and edits those sequences to create a bit of a, you know, you do feel sort of destabilized. Um, I really liked that element of it. I, I saw this movie twice in the theaters. The second time I actually got to see it with a, a buddy of ours who's a, on a, a Facebook over in Land of the Creeks, uh, Steve Morgan. He uh, he lives not too far from me, so we saw it together at the theater. And uh, one of the things he had mentioned, he's like, wow, you know, it did take a little bit to develop into the horror film you're expecting. But the the first film you're watching, the first half of it is no less interesting. You know, uh, you're not – I personally wasn't that much in a rush for it to become the horror movie because I was enjoying – this voyage in back into the sixties and everything that's happening with Anna Taylor joy, that movie is just as interesting to me as anything that happens uh, when, when the horror elements show up. I mean, did you not get a bit of like a cotton club vibe? Yeah. And I was enjoying that. I, I think that's what a sign of a strong movie is. I'm enjoying every moment of this. I was never really in a rush. My minor critiques with it would be that, you know, I'm, I'm on the supernatural elements show up. Because the rest of the movie is so beautiful, I kind of wanted them to be a little more distinct. There's a little bit of some of the way the supernatural is visualized. It just kind of felt like, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Me personally, I just was like, man, I, you've given me so many cool sights. I wish you had found a different way for this to look. But that's a very minor complaint. Uh, the other is that the story isn't excessively... Uh, this isn't going to be something that knocks your socks off on the story level. Not that it's not well told as a story, but the the actual plot the mystery and everything that's going on isn't going to be revolutionary. I think what Edgar Wright is doing and some of the themes he's bringing up and what he's trying to say through the film is a combination of all the elements. That's why the visual, the the music, it all comes together into a whole that feels pretty solid. But if you're trying to judge it on the plot, the plot's okay. It's fine. Yeah, it's okay. The other thing is, I and I will admit to everybody, I did have to text Nathan and say, what is the connection with Stamp? Now I'm sure on a second viewing I would catch it, but yeah. it it was not very well put to towards the audience. Uh, the hmm. thing with the stamp scene, and I, there's no spoilers here. When you kind of get down to it, it did take me a minute too, and then I realized, oh, you did. There's so much packed into the movie that when the connective point showed up, I thought to myself, "This is important. I better remember it," and I didn't. <laughs> and then. When the stamp thing caught me off guard and I immediately thought, man, I should have seen that coming, but I didn't. Yeah, uh, I like the way Edgar Wright has, uh, you know, sort of 
legendary actors like Rig and Stamp in it, um, some of them end up being very important and some don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that's intentional. Like the, when, when you get an actor like that and a very recognizable actor in your movie, you're saying, hey, pay attention to this. This guy's going to be important. But just like the main character, we don't know who's important or not. So he's kind of playing with us a little bit. I think Wright, Wright is playing with us a little bit with those guys. But um, but yeah, I, going back to what you said earlier, uh, Nathan, I just wanted to say um, I really loved the way um, the, the basic metaphor of yeah, she's starting a new career and she's really into it. And then it turns out to not be, I mean, she is really good at that, but it's really the industry isn't the way yeah. and the, and you know, London isn't really what she experienced and soon it becomes horrific. Um, and in that way, it really reminded me of the assistant from last year. Yes, where, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Which was on your best of last year list. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really awesome movie where it's, it's just like, yeah, uh, my career isn't what I made it out to be in my mind, <laughs> you know? Well, uh, the other element I liked is you weren't sure whether to kind of jump in on and like Matt Smith, or is he just a scumbag? You weren't quite sure. Right. It, it took, it took a long time to get there. I think that, that, you know, it was interesting to see that character kind of played that way. And uh, also because you said an interesting thing too, Victor, a few minutes ago, you said he's playing with us uh beggar right as opposed to toying with us you know which is a difference i think um because this movie even though it gets very dark and it has some uh not just the horror i think even the sadness of some of it like uh there's an underlying melancholy and a sadness as there should be to where the story goes but the movie itself is pretty playful i think like playful is the way i would describe it it doesn't feel convoluted you don't feel like you're strung along you don't feel like you're being toyed with you feel like you're sort of in you know in a lot of ways honestly i'll be perfectly honest this might be my favorite edgar wright movie i do love Shaun of the dead but there's so many things about this particularly just being in this world and 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 wanting to return to this world even though it's sometimes a dark seedy not great place uh, that's a fascinating thing to me. I love this movie in the same way that I love some David Lynch movies, although they're very yeah. different filmmakers. Yeah, agree. I, I, I feel this. I mean, when you're considering David uh, or, uh, 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 rights, uh, over, uh, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's at the top of the list for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was just going to say, I would give this eight out of 10. I think anybody that's either loves genre films or just wants a good story being told, definitely worth watching. And and for anybody who knows the the horror sci-fi fantasy genre, Matt Smith, when I first looked at him, I go, you know, he's one of those guys sticking the back of your head. Ah, his house. That's where everyone else is Doctor mm. Who, and then he's like, he yeah. has like a fun. He's kind of uh, slimy in his house too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's where I got. See, I didn't know him from Doctor yeah. Who. I knew him from his house. He's a good actor. Yeah. He's been on other things too. I think was he on the, um, was he in the Crown? Uh, yeah, like he David, might have been, yeah. David Tennant. I think all the Doctor Who's have been there over there. But you yeah, know, every British actor. Yeah, 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 you're right. Um, but uh. Yeah. Th- how about you, Victor? What's your rating on this one? Yeah, I give it an eight point five. I uh, I really 
I really love the period. It's one of those movies. Uh, there's two things I want to say. One is if you are, you like horror content, but you're really not into being scared to death. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is a really good movie for you because it's more fantasy that turns very dark at the yeah. end um, rather than, you know, something that is just designed to scare your pants off. Uh, but, I was going to say, but, let, but let's just say there is some blood. Don't make any mistake. There is some blood. Yes. Very stylishly employed. <laughs> okay. I'll put it that way. Sure. Great. Yeah. Stylishly yeah no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought it was really good. And it's one of those movies where like, as soon as I heard the, the blurb of what it was about, I was like, Oh, awesome. This is going to be incredible. Like I've never seen a movie that really tackled it like this. Um, and it lived up to the expectation. It didn't exceed it by far, but uh, it it's a really cool concept and it's a really cool movie. So yeah, I give it an eight point five. Yeah, I'm actually I'm I'm probably the highest in this. I'm a nine with this one. I have seen it twice, and I did. Re- and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. This is one that I'm kind of waiting. Like I'll wait and get this on a physical <laughs> a physical media. Um, it's really I, I loved pretty much everything about it. There are you know are there weak points here or there there are again as a story. This isn't necessarily like out of the part, but it's the sum of the parts for me uh, and the way that everything comes together that I just really um, appreciated. And, you know, I think an interesting perspective there, Victor, you talk about, you know, if you're not really, really into horror, I think what's interesting is if you were to watch this whole film and then recount the story to somebody, the story you told would be a little bit more traditionally horror than maybe what we're saying. But the experience of watching it and the way that Wright unfolds it, it feels like a lot of different genres, you know, because you're never mm-hmm. sure if you're watching science fiction or fantasy or a psychological thriller early on. Now, the resolution of the story sort of puts it more for firmly in one of those genres than the others. But that's not necessarily experience of watching it, you know, which is cool, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yep, Absolutely. And I was going to say, just for me being a music geek, the soundtrack is fun, is top notch. Yep. So even even if you're not one who gets into the story, the music will get you there, and just wait for the end. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is there other? Oh, oh, sorry. Last thing that I thought linked them together. All of the movies that link together is let the story weave as it is, and just go along for the journey. I mean, Dune is that way. Spine and Night is that way. Last Night in Soho is that way. Just go on for the journey. Let it travel. Don't worry about connecting all the dots because they all come together at the end. Yeah. And and I think the other thing, very, very visual uh, filmmakers at work here, very, very visual films, you know, uh, that the, the, the experience of watching them is as good as anything else that's being done in them, in my opinion. And I think that's my favorite kind of movie. And it's rare though, that I think those movies uh, sort of hit the mark and there's three that did hit the mark. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I don't know if there's any other big movies we wanted to cover, you know, in a, in a big detailed review, but I did want to kind of open up the door to sort of uh, all of us just talk about things we've seen that we may want to mention, whether that be new or old. And uh, there's a couple newer films. I've seen a lot of the newer films. Uh, 
and we can mention one or two of them here. But uh, Bill, is there anything you wanted to uh, mention or talk about that you've been? Well, watching? there was there was a couple actually, and one that uh, people have seen, and it isn't necessarily uh, horror or sci-fi or what have you. It's more action, and it's just a fun fluff film, a popcorn film called Red Notice. And Red Notice is a, a Netflix film uh, directed by Ross and Marshall Thurber, who did Dodgeball, a true, sto- a true underdog story, mm. and We Are the Millers. And it stars a couple of people you'd know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, Ryan Reynolds, and Gal Gadot. And it's essentially a caper film. It's uh, somebody who's being chased by Interpol, and it's a cat and mouse game involving high art and robbing somebody for something. And there's twists and turns along the way. It's nothing too complex. Quite frankly, I find Ryan Reynolds overacts and quite annoying, to be honest. He's annoying <laughs> in a charming kind of way. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it resolves the way it resolves. There's lots of actions, there's explosions. Uh, there's some bad CGI. Uh, the song Downtown is shown again in this film. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> forgot about that. This is where yeah. the moratorium kicked in for me. I'm like, no, no more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's a ridiculous a ridiculous cameo by Ed Sheeran in this film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is it a great film? It, you know what? If you're sitting, I honestly watched this with my wife on the couch. She wanted something to watch. I had seen some negative ads about it. I put it on. I, you know what? I enjoyed it. You know, does it have plot holes? The size of Swiss cheese. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> you need a plot before you can have holes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's meant that way. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm it's, just it's, teasing. It's almost, it's yeah, no, it's, it's almost a parody of itself. Yeah. That's really what it is. I gave it a seven and a half just for pure sit on the couch Sit with your. It'd be a great date film. It'd be a great film with the wife. It'd be a great film with the brother and sister. Don't think. Put your head on the door. Grab some salty popcorn. Put your head on pop, the door. <laughs> you know, get, grab your salty popcorn and drink of your choice and just chill out for an hour and a half. So that I know that Pearl Morgan loved the film. Now she might also like Ryan Reynolds a bit more than I do, but Gal Gadot I thought really kind of stole the show here. And she did a, yeah. a pretty decent job. So, you know what? Is it going to be on anybody's top 10 list? I don't know. It might sneak into a number 10 or something on another. But this, you know, you could do a lot worse with 90 minutes. Yeah. Uh, Nathan? Was- Nathan or Victor, what are your thoughts on this film? No, I was just going to say, I, I thought I had a very similar experience watching it uh, the, the, to, to what you did, Bill. I, I mean, I uh, I watched it with my wife and... We enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, it's fine. It, it it delivers pretty much what you expect it to deliver, and um, I give it a seven out of ten. Yeah, back when these kinds of movies used to be released in the theaters, you know, back in like nineteen ninety five, is that that kind of ninety five <laughs> vibe? Did you not yeah. get the impression you, you expected Pierce Brosnan to jump out? Of yeah, well, in in, in nineteen ninety five, I would have absolutely, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and in uh, George Clooney or somebody, but. I, you know, and these are the stars of the moment, right? These are the fun, the people that, you know, they're fun to hang around with in a movie. It doesn't really matter what they're doing. And that's kind of proved here because what they're doing is not that technically in, you know, it's, it's, it's very generic, I think, in terms of the kind of action adventure movie that it is. So, but it's Ryan Reynolds and it's, uh, 
Dwayne Johnson and it's Gal Gadot doing it. And so that is really what you're watching. You're watching these three people sort of interplay with each other. That interplay is fun. The movie kind of gets out of their way and lets them do their thing, uh, which means as a movie, it's not dreadfully, um, you know, interesting to think about per se, but it's a lot of fun to watch. I think it back when these movies were being released in the nineties, I, you know, I think it was, it's actually, um, Roger Ebert was usually the guy that has pulse on these sorts of kinds of movies, but I think it was Gene Siskel who said, you know, why do we go to these kinds of movies? It's just to eat candy in the dark <laughs> in a sense. And it's a, you know, but he said it in an affectionate way. It was a movie he had given a thumbs up to. And he was just saying, you know, we, we, it's, it's, you're there to enjoy in these sorts of movies. Uh, sometimes with better plots, you saw these a lot in the golden age of Hollywood where we don't care what the movie is. We got these stars to sign on and we'll make, we'll figure out what kind of movie it is later. And Red <laughs> notice has a little bit of that, but you know, my kids like all these actors, uh, they're among their favorite people because they're all in the superhero and action movies. And, you know, uh, Ryan Reynolds is, I, I, Ryan Reynolds is a very different career than I thought he would have had. I'm happy for him. And I, he, he he's, um, he, he can be irritating, annoying, but he always has that self-awareness that he's irritating, annoying. So you kind of cut him a pass most of the time. Yeah, he, he's not, he's like that comedian that has the same line five yeah, times, I, but he keeps, it keeps going back to it. I find him kind of charming. I kind of like him now. I didn't initially, but over the years, he's kind of worn me down, I guess. <laughs> but I'm, I'm like, a, it's like a six. I like it's, it, or, you know, it, it's perfectly fine. It's, um, it's a fun, fun kind of like family night movie. You may not remember it after you watched it, except to think, hey, I just saw The Rock <laughs> and Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot were all doing something together. Was it a, uh, was I, it a telethon? I'll, I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I'll make the audience laugh. I've got notes of it. So I will yeah. always have red notice in my <laughs> And I may be downplaying the plot more than I would, but I think if this were if this plot were a bunch of unknowns in some sort of indie movie, I don't think we'd be talking much about it at all. No. But it, but it wouldn't have the visuals because it wouldn't have had the budget, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's eat candy in the dark. Make it good candy. That's it. You know, get your your favorite yeah. uh, peanut M and M's and throw them into your popcorn and or your fun. Canadian candy, which I have a whole bunch of because Bill just graciously sent us a box for Christmas. <laughs> My kids saw the box and the bottom side of the box says, "What does it say?" In it's like, uh, oh, I got I got the box in the bin at the but Dollar it had Tree a weird phrase on the fixed. side. It was like, uh impact novelty or something with something novelty and i was like that's weird and then they're like it's bill it's like it's canada only one thing comes from canada <laughs> is is there i mean is the candy much more delicious than the candy we no, get like, it, it, it's, it's just different. not it's just different you know it's the fact that we don't have some of it here and some of it's funny i i, I got the pictures i put online there is this thing called a coffee crisp that's quite delicious, Victor. You know, I get the feeling that Canadian candy, as much like Canadian film, feels like you've got the American stuff where it's like, okay, you've you've product tested this and you've got it down to a science. And then it feels like, you know, like Canadian movies, feels like something you made in your home and said, yep, it's good enough. It's going out. And <laughs> which means it's weird, but not unpleasant. <laughs> and it kind of grows on you. Well, like, you know, I'll, 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 t I'll tell anybody, Victor, look up Canadian Smarties. <laughs> Mm. And the, oh, like, man. like your guys' Smarties are what we call rockets. That's right. I took a picture of that. The Smarties are M and M's, and the and the Smarties that look identical to a Smartie, the same wrapping, the same logistics as far as which little candies are like colors are lined up, and it just says rockets in the same font. <laughs> but then they're, they're both super inappropriate names yes, for yes. that candy, rockets and which Smarties. I totally 
OD'd on when I was like 27 or 28 <sighs> and I can't eat them anymore. <laughs> yeah, I did something similar because after a while your tongue goes numb. My daughter and, and learned other, this. It's like I'm actually the, having mouth paralysis. <laughs> the other one I sent him, I, I doubt he's eaten it yet because it's not that great. But if you have dental work, do not have eat more. I already ate that whole thing, Bill. And I didn't even <laughs> or did it. I looked down. I was like, damn it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a giant brick. And it looks like all you did was take a scraper and scrape the stuff off the floor of the theater and make it into a bar. They, 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 the they call it, I think they call it a, a chocolatey chew. Yeah, it's, it's got nuts. It's, yeah, it's like a peanut it. chew, except it's softer. It's like the softness of like a fig newton, which is weird, <laughs> like the interior of a fig newton. Wow, that is not at all what I thought you guys were going to say about this, this candy candy shipment. Like, I, I, I just, you know, I, I've, I'm not a huge dessert or candy yeah. guy, but, you know, I've been to Australia and I've been to England and their chocolate candy is very tasty. Like, it, it has yeah. elements that aren't in the American versions. <laughs> and so I thought similar well, and, and, that, and the Canadian candy is basically a hybrid of American and British. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lot of toffees and things. And then there's a lot of maple involved in some of it. And uh, But some of it is very good because it's sort of low-key. Like, this coffee crisp thing is like a wafer candy, not unless it's like a Kit Kat. But it's very much infused with coffee, but in a kind of understated way. That's the thing I like about some of it because I'm not kind of – I'm not huge into desserts either per se and like particularly really, really sweet things. But I, I think my favorite thing is the names of the Canadian candies are always like the – like there's one that's – what is it? Mr. Big or something like that. And it's Big. like eat more. It's just like the most <laughs> random title. Well, I, there's a chocolate bar called Mr. Big and the tagline on TV used to be when you're this big, they call you Mr. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, it works. <laughs> Crazy. What's another one? I was looking at the titles. I'm like, these are ridiculous. And um, my, my well, there, I was, was going to say, can you describe to Victor what an all dressed chip tastes like? Oh, it tastes like somebody took those like all spice things and just poured a bunch of it on a chip and then like rolled it around and like you know those powders like that you make dips out of like ranch dressing dips and french onion dip imagine you just took all those and laid them out and then rolled a chip in it for like i don't know 35 minutes it's a it's intense you just put it in your mouth mm-hmm. and you're like whoa it's just like the it's the same thing that happens when you run a coke under or a, a soda under all those fountains <laughs> it's like that in chip yeah. form <laughs> well they literally make uh, victor there's this chip called all dressed and it's literally barbecue sour cream salt and vinegar and whatever, and they just pour it like a, a cheese, and they just pour it all on a, all in a certain combination at once. You can't eat a lot of oh. them. <laughs> I get it. It's, it's my wife dress. loves them. My wife it's loves dressed. Them. Yeah, it's uh, ready for the town. It's, um... <laughs> anyway, so Victor, is there anything you've seen that you want to talk yeah, about? Please. Uh, no, nothing that can't wait till um, you know an end of the year episode. Uh, I would, I would just say you guys have probably both seen. Um, the Mitchells versus the Machines. Yes, uh, yeah. On Netflix. I thought that was exceptionally good. Um, it, it'll probably make my top ten list. And because it came out a few months ago, I, I just wanted to not escape people's minds. And it's definitely worth seeing. It's a great Disney alternative, and um, it's included in Netflix. So why? It not? is. It's very good. It's surprisingly good. I didn't really know much about it, and honestly, I'm sitting here trying to think, make sure I'm not speaking out of turn here because. What was the, we have a Pixar movie this summer? We did, right? Yeah. What was it? Uh, 
clearly it was great. What was it? Encanto. Um, Encanto was just recently. That was in the past couple of weeks, but I think, and, and, and I've seen that one. I'm starting to think of what, um, no, I haven't seen that one. I'm sorry. I haven't seen Encanto yet, but uh, wasn't there a Pixar over the, over the be. summer? Either way, Mitchell's versus machines is, I think one of the best animated movies that's come out this year. Yeah. Um, particularly in that vein of kid-friendly animation. And there's a lot of it now. There's a lot. Oh, Luca was the one that came out this summer. Uh, also directly to, uh, was it Disney Plus or to to Netflix? Maybe I don't remember where it went, but I think it was Disney yeah. Plus. But um, yeah, this is better than that. And uh, we're getting a lot of kids' animation that's just sort of just showing up. Uh, and a lot of it's not great. Uh, honestly, a lot of it is looks all the same, sounds the same, feels the same. This one does not. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's there's so much detail in it. Oh, sorry, yeah, I still, sorry. I, I still, no worries. I just, I said I still need to see it, so it's one I'll have to get in before the end of the year. It's fun and it's very sci-fi. It involves an invasion of robots, the end of the world, the apocalypse. So possibly. if I if I, have an, if I have ninety minutes, do I watch that or Free Guy? This, I think, I like Free Guy too, but I like this better. What free guy? Free guy Ryan Reynolds, Canadian. Keep going, keep going, <laughs> keep keep going. Yeah, yeah, buddy. <laughs> but I, 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 from what I understand, it's a take on a video game. Oh, oh like you get a free guy if if you get enough points, right? But in this sense, but what this is, yeah, in a sense, that's one of the meanings. But in this movie, and you'll understand this per- uh, perfectly, Victor. Ryan Reynolds is a by st- a guy going about his life who then realizes that he is a he's an NPC in a world that is basically Fortnite meets Grand Theft Auto. And he doesn't really know that he is that person until one day he accidentally knocks one of the players down and picks up their glasses, which is what they see, which then makes him also a player. And so it's like a Tron, Truman Show, Dark City uh, deal. And then he realizes, hey, he doesn't have to be the guy that stands there and lets the people mug him or rob the <laughs> bank. He can do things. And his friends, um, Lil Ray Howard, who was in uh, you know, um, Get Out, he is his buddy. And he's like, don't make waves. You just sit there and you let him rob the bank. <laughs> it's, that's what we do. <laughs> and yeah. so it. And then you have the story that's coming from the outside where these characters and, and Taika Waititi is the, the, the kind of uh, facile head of this, uh, of, of this software company. And, it might, and, and Victor, I know that you had some work in that industry, so you might, some of this might seem uncomfortable to you because <laughs> you see yeah, that from the outside. The people who have their, co- their code stolen and, uh, you know, and, and, and games are just going to shipped out with all these bugs and stuff in them. And one of these bugs is that Ryan Reynolds has gained sentience. So there is a whole <laughs> sci-fi story. that's a little bit similar to the Lego movie because, you know, it turns out that, Hey, um, as he interacts with people, other NPCs is the, is the bug spreads. <laughs> Everyone else begins <laughs> to gain sentience too, or not sentience awareness. And it's really a lot of fun for something that seems like a one joke movie at the start. Yeah, that's pretty deep. It's awesome. Like, I didn't know if it's sci-fi, fantasy, action, kid movie. I have no idea. It's a little bit. uh, And and Reynolds gets actually some of his funnier lines. There's a point where they give him some coffee, and he says, how was it? He goes, it's like Jesus washed my tongue, but right before he did, he told my dad, yeah, he's good enough. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's how I feel every morning. Right. It's <laughs> like I was like, that's that's kind of smart for a Disney movie. Yeah. So, All right. So so you give it a recommend. Yeah, both of those movies. Oh, well, Free Guy and um and Miller's uh, the was Miller's versus the Machines. And Mitchell's versus Miss. Thank you, the Millers. That was an awful movie. <laughs> the, the Mitchells well, versus the Machines. <laughs> I've got a couple more. I'm just going to throw out there. Uh, one that I'd recently reviewed on Land of the Creeps, and I'm not going to go into a long review because we 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 did it. Was 2021's No Man of God? Yes. I, I think anybody out there that likes Criminal Minds, likes CSI, likes Mind Hunter, likes those kind of films. It's about the FBI profiler that went in there at the beginning and he has a one-on-one interview and a series over time with Ted Bundy and what he's able, what he's able to extract from him that they eventually use to solve other crimes and kind of behavior analysis of a quote unquote genius serial killer. It's got Elijah Wood. It's got Luke Kirby. It's got Alexa Palladino. I think it's the best role that Elijah Wood has played in a while. And that's saying something. I thought he was really good. And Luke Kirby, it used to be prior to this that when I thought of actors portraying Ted Bundy, Mark Harmon came to mind because he did a great job in the 1986 miniseries. But I thought Luke Kirby was, he had the mannerisms right down pat. Mm -hmm. And it's not a horror, okay? They don't show the killings. It's more from the investigative, journalistic, uh, psychological point of view. And if you like that, please go see No Man of God. I cannot recommend this movie high enough. I know, Nathan, you've seen it. It's very good. It's um, it's really good. And you, what you just said, the three performances uh, that you mentioned are excellent. Everything kind of surrounding it is. It's a very kind of it, – it's kind of more on the thoughtful – side of things this isn't really meant for uh titillation it's a kind of uh it's really that kind of uh, uh more of a uh just a almost a two-hander in a lot of cases where you just got wood going back and forth uh with with the character bundy and the way that's portrayed and it's very interestingly written it's intimately written in a way where this almost could be a play and that would work too. But uh, the way it's directed is re- is really well done. Uh, the writer, the, the guy who wrote this is C. Robert Cargill. He, for uh, years, he was actually a, a, uh, a reviewer on the Ain't It Cool News back in the day when that was still a thing, you know, and then he kind of yeah. upgraded and, and he went on, he's written some fantasy novels. He's also uh, was the writer behind Sinister and then went on to write Doctor Strange and uh, got hooked up pretty well in terms of uh, the movies he's worked on and has done a nice job. He's, what's that? The, those were good. Yeah, yeah. And and this one is good too. And what's interesting is this kind of drops those genre elements and it really gets down into uh, the way the characters are written and the way the interactions are written are, are, are impressive. And that's why I wanted to kind of highlight him because I think he does. And Amber Seeley, the director, I think they do a really nice job with this. And Elijah Wood, I, I love Elijah Wood. And, and he has a, a quirky sensibility to him here. And he plays down the quirkiness here to be more of a mannered guy that you think, 
yeah, I, I can kind of see myself being in this, you know, if I'm in this situation, I might respond the way he does. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of great, um, Supporting actors too. Robert Patrick is here, and and Christian Clemenson, who is uh, I always think of him as Socrates back in the day on uh, the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. But he's oh, yeah, the, yeah. He was also in uh, Veronica Mars, and he also had um, uh, recently he was in Malignant, <laughs> where I most recently remember seeing him. But right. he's he's resurfacing these days a little bit. But it's a very good movie. I highly recommend it. I give it about an eight. Uh, how about you, Bill? I give it a nine. Yeah, it's a good I movie. Really, I really like this one. Wow. Last one I wow. last one I'll throw out there because this is Phantom Galaxy. It's kind of a quirky sci-fi fantasy film. I found by Fluke on Prime and by Fluke it's Canadian. It's by <laughs> no means it's by no means why I watched it because I didn't know when I started it. It's only an hour thirty-four called Confinement, or it's mm-hmm. also called Twenty One Forty Nine The Aftermath. Now it, it was if you look at the date, it says two thousand sixteen. Now, I think uh, it it sat on the festival circuit for a long time and didn't get released or it was stuck in purgatory of releasing and finding a deal, what have you. It didn't get put out into theaters in the States until January, I think, of 2021. So it sat for a while. And it doesn't really have anybody that you'd know. Uh, the director, no. Uh, the lead actor is a name called Nick Krause, who did some... Um, episodic work in grim and parenthood and it has molly parker who who's in the i love molly parker yeah Yeah. uh, i know her from there was a canadian movie about curling called men with brooms which (laughs) i know her i will always remember her from the center of the world (laughs) center of the world yeah (laughs) she was in a tv show called the wicker man i didn't know there was a tv show but the wicker man she's in lost in space right now which is fun on netflix and the movie is about in an oppressive future where everybody's only contact is their computer. One lonely young man is forced to venture forth in search of human contact. Essentially, mm-hmm. what happens is his mom put him in a pod. The world was un- was undergoing uh, a catastrophic event, and she made him believe that he had to stay in this pod to stay safe. Well, he gets out of the pod and discovers that there is a world out there. And there are, are a set of oppressive overlord police controlled state that's controlling everybody. They don't want people to do what they don't say they should do. Mm-hmm. And it's a low budget. You know, it's, you can tell it's Canadian, you know, it's shot in, you know, probably backwoods of Northern Ontario or something, <laughs> but he, he, he wanders from large stretches of, of property to try to find the truth. And so it's got budgetary limitations you know, it, it deals, but it's really good for today because it deals with people with mental health issues, being cooped up. You know, do you understand what the government's coming from? Do you want to live in a controlled state? I only gave it a 7 out of 10 because, you know, I mean, it, it, the story wears a bit thin. You can't rate it higher than Dune. No, no, that's true. <laughs> but in some ways, more enjoyable, easier to follow. I'll tell you that much. Mm, so 7 out of 10 and uh, check out if you like your sci-fi. You could do a lot worse than confinement or 2149 the aftermath. Sounds good. I no, you guys really fired me up about No Man of God. I I can't wait to check that out. 
Yeah, it's yeah. It's you're you're, you're going to like it, Victor. You're really going to like. It. <laughs> now, do you have anything obscure just to kind of let the audience know that you saw uh, a movie? I saw that you can rent. I've seen a couple, and I want to save some of them, like Victor, for the end of the year because I think I'll absolutely be talking about them. And not that this one is not among them, but I do want to mention it because it's a movie that I don't I think um, will slip through the crack has slipped through the cracks in some ways, and will slip through the cracks with uh, uh, some audience members that may want to see it, even though they may not think. They do. This is uh, directed by Pablo Lorraine. This is called Spencer. And it was most notable to me as the movie where Kristen Stewart was playing Princess Diana. And so much so that when I first saw the trailer for this, I didn't realize it was Kristen Stewart. I'll be honest. Um, I'm not like I actually think Kristen Stewart is a, is a good actress. I don't know that she's good in every movie I've seen her in. But uh, even from genre movies like Underwater to, I think, an yeah. excellent movie called Personal Shopper, um, yeah. she could be very, very good. And she is at the top of her game in this movie. And this, you know, it's really one of those things that deals with uh, uh, this kind of long weekend uh, over at Christmas when she comes. You've got uh, Diana and Charles are already on the rocks, but... There's all kinds of rumors going on about what's going on. The media has all speculations. This is that point in time where there's already sort of uh, the, the cracks are showing in terms of the royal family and their relationship to her. And so she's now been invited to this uh, these festivities at the estate. And there's lots of things going on that are pretty general. You know, there's going to be games of hunting and there's going to be shooting and there's going to be uh, you know, all the holiday festivities, the movie takes place in that world. So it's beautifully shot. It looks wonderful. Stephen Knight wrote this. Stephen Knight also wrote a great movie called lock with, um, uh, oh, who was in that? Um, Tom, uh, Hardy, Tom Hardy. Thank you very much. Don't know why that blanked on that, but to go back. Yeah. Stephen Knight wrote a great movie called lock. It was basically, uh, Tom Hardy, driving in a car and uh the drama and everything that was able to interject in that was great the same thing is here where you have a lot of uh, ridiculously uh rich and entitled people <laughs> sort of lounging about and doing their thing but when you the movie is shot and presented through the eyes of diana and through uh kristen stewart's portrayal of diana along with this great cast uh, that you know, you've got Sally Hawkins in it and Timothy Spall's in it. Sean Harris, who's always great. Uh, in fact, it was fun to see Sean Harris as King Arthur in the Green Knight. Uh, oh, yeah, it's just a great cast of characters. And then what's really interesting is it's taking place over this small encapsulated period of time. We're not, this is not a murder mystery. You know, there are people who say, oh, you know, they were responsible kind of for what happened, but the event that takes her life happens six years after this, you know, this though is fascinating. I think in the way and the tone in which it is shot, because they capture a sense of, of being the outsider of being alienated in a certain situation, even though everyone from the outside is looking at you and thinking, you know, Hey, you've got all these things. And the a sense of alienation and the sense of paranoia and even the sense of disconnectedness, that her character feels and that the movie sort of puts her through. It is not unlike the tones that you would find in a horror film. And in fact, I'd argue that a slow burn horror movie that is saving something horrible for the third act. Uh, this is the movie where all that tension accumulates and the third act, like 
shoe never drops. <laughs> and so, uh, so, would you call this what the what Jay likes to call social horror? Uh, no, because I ultimately don't think it's a horror movie. I know um, our uh, the, the person who turned me on to watching this was um, uh, Amanda, who was on a few episodes ago when uh, we we she came on for a uh, episode when we talked about weekly releases and so she's always dropping me a line saying oh you should check this movie out and this movie she had described to me saying oh you know it kind of felt like watching a horror film and that obviously kind of piqued my interest because not because i wasn't already interested in it but it seems so far from what this movie is supposed to be and yet that tone that tonal shift that sort of takes place is very interesting. It makes the movie very compelling. And it is another movie that just looks wonderful to look at, to sort of be a part of and the texture of it and her performance. And it has a very um, unsettling sort of sensibility to it. It, it, it. Something is off. We know it's off with these people. It's off in the way they're interacting with her, the way uh, the things that they're doing and sort of the way she's perceiving those things. Um, and you get this feeling of a person trapped uh, in not unlike a movie where you want to see a character escape the events in a horror film, the walls are closing in and you get that. And that's not at all what I was expecting from this movie. You know, I was expecting something more languid, something a little more stately, you know, the kind of movie Miramax would have put out in like 1996. Uh, not that they didn't put out their share of psychological thrillers, not that this is a psychological thriller, but there are more earmarks of that kind of film that I think you'd be expecting. And I think it's really good. It's a very smartly written. It's done in such a way where the feelings in the movie, the mood of the movie sort of resonates long after it's done. Uh, it is another movie. It feels like it is the sum of its parts. Um, I really loved it. So do you get a lot of the backstabbing, you know, family-ish kind of yes, feel? Or is it- yes, in a sense. But in that sense of it's coming and there's nothing I can do to stop it. It's not not like the freewheeling that you would see in like a Gosford Park or a film like that. This is very much centered with her character. So you see sort of your eyes. And so it feels more personal and sort of hurtful. You know, you 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 take those blows not as a bemused observer – but you take them a little bit more personally than I think you do typically in the sort of movie where you have that detached British British amusement, but she's the outsider here. So it not, it's not amusing. It's much more sinister. Gotcha. Sounds so, good. You know, so, so people that wouldn't necessarily be in on, you know, royalty type films. would. I think it's worth, it. yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, for me at, at 8.5, you could go higher. Uh, Loved it, liked uh, liked her in it a tremendous amount. But it was a movie I was honestly sort of like, ah, okay, I, you know, I'll see this. She looks like she's giving a good performance. It's a movie I expected to admire more than to be drawn into, and I was drawn into it, and which made me admire it even more. So awesome! I, I like it when you go with a, into a film with low yeah. to mid level expectations, and it is one you can rent now on Prime and things like that. I think you can actually buy it too. Uh, it's probably about $20, but when movies are $20 to rent, I have a hard time doing that. I don't feel as bad if I can actually own it, watch it again a few times, but um, it's absolutely worth seeing. And I mention it, I review it because it seems exactly like the kind of movie that uh, people are going to overlook because they're going to look at the subject matter and either uh, not be drawn in by it or assume that it's going to be presented in a very kind of dry stately way. And that's not what this movie is. Awesome. 
so uh, Victor, is there anything else you want to bring up or are you, are you now just going to be looking to fill your time by watching movies you haven't seen? <laughs> um, yeah, as much as I can. Um, <laughs> but no, I think those are, those are the main, main ones I wanted to bring up. So yeah. Perfect. Well, Nathan, is there anything else you think we need to talk about? No, or I think we've, uh, I mean, there are always, there's always more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, oh, endless, yes. endless. Uh, which is good. I mean, that, that that allows us to have more review episodes. And I would say anyone who's out there is listening and there's a movie, uh, a book, a TV show, uh, anything, the uh, album, can, can, Canadian candy, anything you want to see <laughs> us review or, or any candy from anywhere. In fact, that might be cool, Bill. You know, if, if I get yeah. people to send me, I would, you know, I got to a point where people are sending me screeners. If I get people to send me candy, I've arrived, you know. And uh, you would like some Japanese candy, some Ecuadorian. I've had, candy. I've had, I haven't had Ecuadorian candy. As long as it doesn't give me a curse involving killer cats, I'm good. Um, <laughs> now, yeah. now I'm referencing other episodes. It's time to stop. Uh, it's time to quit for the night. Yeah. <laughs> the X-Files episode with the, the Ecuadorian killer curse cats. Uh, but yeah, as far as Phantom Galaxy goes, if, this, if there's something like that and you're listening to this, uh, head over to the Facebook page or to the Facebook group page and just, uh, let us know. You can send us an email at phantomcasts at gmail.com and uh, let us know if you've enjoyed the episodes, any particular episodes you enjoyed. And again, if there's something specifically you want to us to review, let us know. If you are a creator, uh, you've written a story, you've published a book, you have made a film, or you make candy or beer for that matter, <laughs> whatever it is, and you'd like us to review it on the show, please let us know that as well. We're always open for uh, for that, and uh, we'd be happy to uh, discuss with you and uh, take a look at whatever it is uh, you'd like us to look at. And yeah, show t- I was going to say show topics yeah, of any yeah. kind. Uh, right. Please throw them at us. I know. Themes. Movies, yeah, what have we got you. a lot of great feedback on the the best horror novels, and uh, we're really open to doing any you know anything uh, in that vein. So if there's a if there's a certain kind of topic or you want to see a top ten on something, please throw it out there. Uh, so with that, uh, that's what Phantom Galaxy has. Victor, how about you? Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or reiterate before we uh, close out? Uh, only that I have two vocal dramatic readings on YouTube. Um, I uh, do a reading of HP Lovecraft's The Outsider and um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. Um, and um, they're both free. You can you just go to Geekin, the Geekin channel on YouTube, and uh, you just put in my name or either of those authors and it will come up. And I'm very proud of them. They are very good and they are already in your links. <laughs> oh, man, as well. you. <laughs> so, um, now I'm almost afraid Victor to just type in Victor Rodriguez. I mean, it could be a flamenco guitar player. That you got to get the H in there. Yeah. The H is there's, there's a few of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, when, when I was in video games uh, there, I mean, there still is a Victor Rodriguez. That's a producer in, um, in video games. And we would often get each other's badges at conventions and stuff. <laughs> that's, that's cool. <laughs> that's pretty <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> But um, yeah, you will. Uh, you, you're, you'll see Victor here a lot on the on the Phantom Galaxy. He will be joining us again. Um, I'm also gonna put links to show notes to last year's best. Uh, we did a best of horror, and then we did a kind of best of everything uh, else. And, and Victor also contributed his horror titles to that list. So this year we'll probably have Victor back for both episodes. And uh, it's I'm really looking forward to it because you know ultimately 
uh, although I saw so much of it through streaming, which I think is really cool in a way. Uh, and it was a year that I get to go back to the movie theater. Uh, 2021 film wise was better than I ultimately expected. And yeah, I'm seeing a lot of strong stuff, particularly these fall months. I, I, I've started going back to the theater and I can't think of, uh, you know, the months of September and October were as rich as any sort of like, you know, back in the day, you'd expect all the big, big titles to be thrown out in the summer or something like that. And there's a great, um, a great wealth of movies that came out, but that September through November range and still, still good stuff coming out. So I'm really, um, I'm looking forward to finishing up the year and catching up the last few movies. I'm excited because for the first time since I stopped being a critic, when they would just send me everything and I had it all at my fingertips lunch, I feel like I'm pretty close to finishing my list before the end of the year. Like, I feel like I won't have too many holes of, Oh, I still need to see that. Um, nice. within the next three or four weeks. Uh, there's always Tubi. There's always Tubi. Well, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to dig the hole too deep. I, I, you know, I'm going to throw out there before we close out. I'm actually, I don't know how you guys feel, and I wasn't the biggest. But, yeah, that's about all I have. Bill, anything else you wanted to mention or promote? You're on, like, at any given time, like 17 different podcasts. Yeah. Uh, I was just looking over my notes. I just happened to have my papers out here. And one I watched the other night called Death Rink. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which was i don't know 65 minutes 70 minutes <laughs> a, a horror at a roller rink uh with a lot of you yeah, know you've seen you've seen worse but not a lot worse <laughs> <laughs> so so this isn't like last year when i scoffed at you for saying you watched a movie called aqua slash oh aqua slash is yeah set in a water park and then oh my gosh my wife and i sat down and watched that movie and and maybe it was just the fact that we had we had sequestered the kids somewhere else and it was totally just like a date night, but we had the most fun watching Aqua Slash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Aqua Slash is a is a ball of fun. Death Rink <laughs> is what you remember from nineteen eighty nine. Death Rink what it you know, when you would fall and land on your face on the skate rink, you know, the ice all up in your, you know. <laughs> Well, trying to dance to Spando Ballet with your grade eight girlfriend. That's basically what you're on, doing. The, on, the, on the ice. I think I mostly <laughs> remember about that is uh, I take my kids ice skating now. And I just remember like back in the 80s or the 90s, like, you know, you have those little middle school kids that be like swarming, like in like, like almost like Hitchcock's the birds. You know, you just have small pockets <laughs> of them skating as one entity. And every once in a while, one of them would fall down and like the others, they'd be so close that they would just skate like right over their hand. And then oh. I, I still distinctly have the vivid image of the Zamboni scrubbing pink ice <laughs> off, of the, <laughs> off of the rink. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I'm like, I whose fingers came off. <laughs> See, on the ice. It was like uh, it was like Ray Bradbury. One got hurt. They would just surround it in a huge crowd. You're like somebody's trying <laughs> to crowd. pick them off. <laughs> like are they are they eating their dead? But uh, except, yeah, man. Except this one. Except this one is roller rink. Oh, roller rink. Oh, oh yeah. so yeah. roller rink. Yeah. So yeah. I know I could skate really well. I played hockey. Man, I, I got so excited. See, that's a movie that should have been made in the '80s. <laughs> it's like it's not good enough that it's now like the someone trying to you know do a take. And on if there's it. ever. If there's anybody listening who's seen it, I keep flipping over and I want to watch a movie called Slacks. I like Slacks. Yeah. I thought it was fun. I mean, it's not great. I haven't seen, no. The image of the my, Slacks with nobody in them, but the pants fully filled out is hilarious. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is I got to rewatch uh, Jack Frost recently. <sighs> I, I really. And, and what a 
What a fun movie. Yeah. You forget how, you know, it's, don't take it seriously. Watch Jack Frost, have your favorite libation, you know, have a, a bag of chips so and pretzels. Many. Have and you seen water. that one, Victor? Yes. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's I, unique. It is. When I met up with uh, Dave Becker and we got to go up to, um, and, and Steve Morgan's with us, we went up to uh, Monster Mania. Dave has this giant binder binders full of like the dvds that come out of like you know the vinegar syndrome we'll have like a or, or screen factor have a blu-ray and then uh it's got the dvd which he's not need anymore so he's just got binders of these things and so he's like take whatever you want and it's like christmas and you start <laughs> piloting these these titles and i one of the ones i grabbed was a vinegar syndrome like a uh, dvd release of jack frost so oh really <laughs> i can't wait to i only think i remember a couple scenes of that there's something that he does that's unfortunate involving a carrot and um <laughs> There's also a scene towards the end when he gets blown up or something and his head is flying through the air. And just remember that the snowman head is like, I can see my house from here. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's total schlock. It's total whatever. But, but you but know what? Yeah. Comfort, comfort for this time of year. It's great. Watch Jack Frost. And I haven't seen part two. The thing that always so, astounds me about those movies, Ice Cream Man with Clint Howard's another one. Um, that incidentally, while we were at Monster Mania, Dave actually bought the Blu-ray. I encouraged him to buy the Blu-ray of that one. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, and so those movies that were made in that '90s period with this such a ridiculous premise—it's always weird to see all the actors they managed to like round up from. Particularly, Ice Cream Man has like David Warner and David Naughton and all these other actors alongside Clint Howard, and yet how they try to really make a story. Like in some ways. The story attempts, even something like Jack Frost, where they try to build out the concept of the the snowman killer and who he is and how he was created. And there's a whole sci-fi story underneath of it. You're yeah, like, yeah, there's a whole scientific element to it that I've totally forgotten. There's so much more effort that goes into it, which sets them apart from the sci-fi original movies because it's like you've got all the schlock and then you're still trying to have the integrity to tell a story. I don't know how to feel about that. So uh, all I'm trying to say is every once in a while when you troll Tubi, you find Jack Frost. <laughs> it's just not a gem, just Jack Frost. You're going to eventually come across Jack. Oh, it's wretched. But anyway, that, that Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and oh, that, thank you. that's the Phantom Galaxy signing out, everyone. Take care. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.